Who is the person that you stared face to face with that truly scared you the most? I've sat across a couple of bad guys that were really, really evil. But one in particular, he was involved with this satanic cult. They sacrificed a girl in Forest Hills Park. They impaled her with a sword. The autopsy had a crushed chest cavity. It wasn't sharp, but it was so heavy. He said that we knew we'd kill her with it. Looking at him was like looking at the devil. This is Mike Codella. He's a former NYPD detective who has some of the most unbelievable stories I've ever heard in my life, but they are absolutely true. Today, he's gonna tell us about the time he uncovered a satanic cult operating in New York City. It was a satanic cult. They were influential people. One of the guys was related to one of the DAs. There were doctors involved, and they were people with substantial means. How he saved lives during September 11th. The first tower that went down, I was in that building. I went to the hospital, they cleaned me up, and then I went back to the building an hour or two later. After after the building collapsed, you went back? We had to start digging people out. What it was like surviving gang violence as an undercover cop. There was a hit on you. $50,000 for me and 50 for my partner. I wasn't an easy target. And the time his friends beat up a mafia boss. Your boys that you grew up with all beat the shit out of a mafia associate. I'm a mafia weak shot. Oh, so this is a serious issue. Everybody got retribution. One guy got a plane in his head. My other friend got shot in the legs with a sort of shotgun. Mike is genuinely an awesome dude. If you've ever talked to a retired cop, they have some of the best stories ever and the NYPD guys have seen everything. So without further ado, enjoy Mike Codella. Welcome to camp. Mike Codella. I'm very excited for you to be here, man. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you for schlepping all the way from Staten Island from your trash pile um, below Manhattan to be here, man. No problem. This is uh, this is going to be fun. You have a fascinating story. <clears throat> You've lived an absolutely remarkable life. Some highlights, some some little details here and there, so people know. 22 years NYPD law enforcement. Many of those years as a detective. Many of those years as a plainclothes officer. And then you went undercover for a long time. And then you became a sergeant of the detectives. Right. You've lived. Uh, quite a life. You've seen arguably the best and worst of humanity, specifically in New York City, uh, in a time where New York City was not particularly safe. Uh, and yeah, you just had, you've had a very wild go. Your grandfather's also connected to the mafia, yep. which you didn't realize until much later. So there's a lot of stuff to uncover. But the thing that I'm most curious about to begin, who is the criminal or the person that you stared face to face with, looked him in the eye, that truly scared you the most, that shook you to your core, that made you think, like, there's nothing in this person except pure evil? So <clears throat> I've sat across a couple of bad guys that were really, really evil and, and treacherous guys, but one in particular I think was probably uh, not only intimidating but also, like, the personification of evil and, uh, and because of not... And because of what he was involved with, it just exemplified what a what a bad guy he was. And, and uh, so his name was John Lentini. His nickname was Tiny. He was a motorcycle gang guy, vice president of a motorcycle gang in Brooklyn. And uh, he was involved with this satanic cult. And even when I went up to Attica to go speak to him, the correction officers warned me. Uh, that he was, you know, big guy, obviously, was a, not obviously, but he turned out to be about 350 pounds. But the correction officers warned me that he was a dangerous guy in the facility. And they actually didn't even want me to go see him without them being with, you know, being with me in the, in the room, which is unusual because when you're interviewing a guy, you know, he's not going to be so forthcoming in front of COs. 
but they thought he was going to be, uh, you know, there was an opportunity for him to get violent. Mm -hmm. And aside from the violent, his violent nature, he was just an evil, uh, evil guy. Like looking, looking at him was like looking at the devil. Really? Yeah. And what was your first contact with him? How did his story sort of unfold in your life? Yeah. So he was, um, he was in Attica. Which is a, a prison. Yeah. Attica state prison. And he was doing time for sodomizing his infant daughter, him and his wife at the time. Like the most evil thing you could imagine another human being doing. Yeah, and the wife had taken pictures. <laughs> and before I went up to see him, I got to look at his case folder and look at the pictures. So, so this is the kind of guy I'm dealing with, a guy who had sex with his infant daughter. The wife also was involved, and he made her take pictures. And... You know, when when you go up there or when you go to elicit information from an inmate or from any anyone, you can't be confrontational. So basically I had to let him believe or insinuate that I thought it was okay what he was doing. So otherwise he's not going to open up to me mm-hmm. about the other stuff. And what was the subtext of why you were going to go speak with him? Yeah, so what happened was he was... So he called up. He called up my office, and he said he had information on uh, this infamous missing person case from New York City. And the, the missing person case was a kid named Eton Pates, who was uh, seven years old at the time, walking to a bus, walking to school, and the mother. It was the first time supposedly the kid had ever walked to, walked to the bus stop by himself, and the mother was watching him. This was down in Soho area of Manhattan. The mother was watching from her second floor window as the kid was walking to school. And she had another, she had other children in the house. And at some point, one of the other kids diverted her attention and she turned from the window. Only for a couple of seconds, according to all accounts. When she turned back, the, the son, Eton, was gone. She assumed that he got on the bus and went to school. But it turned out that he never, he never made it to school. The teachers just thought he had stayed home, um, but obviously he didn't. When he, when he failed to come home from school that day, she realized that he was missing. So for that 15 seconds that she turned her head from the window, her kid was abducted. That is brutal. Yeah, and that was a famous case. Like that case was probably one of the most famous, not only missing person cases, but one of the most most investigated cases ever in New York City. Yeah, I mean, in the middle of the day right. in New York City to have right. a child go missing at any time in history is pretty, you know, shocking. Yeah. I, it's going to it's gonna rile the neighborhood up and people are going to be wanting answers. Yeah, they actually, he, that kid, Eton Pates, he actually became the first kid on the milk, you know, missing, yeah, yeah, yeah. missing kids on milk containers. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, and did they ever recover his body? Did they ever find him? No, they never recovered his body, but <clears throat> what happened was, so I'll backtrack to this guy, Tiny. So he calls up and he said he had information on Eton Pates. And how long has that case been called for by the time he calls you? Well, he called probably in like 96, 97. And Eton was missing from 1979, May 25th, 1979. It's almost 20 years, or more than 20 years. Right. Wow. And um, it was called for, you know, obviously all those, all those years. So you get a call. It's this sicko saying, right. hey. I've heard about this guy, Eton Pates. I know some information. Maybe you could help, you know, I could help you out. Why don't you come down here? Right, because he was looking to get paroled. 
And if he gives us some information about this this case, then he could get a little favorable sentence kind yeah. of thing? Yeah, he was hoping to get out if he gave us information. And so I went, I got his case folder, we looked it up, looked it over. And again, we saw those pictures and we saw what he had done and he, who he was involved with criminally. And um, he had a bunch of bunch of arrests. Other than that, like a, like like many criminals, he had a long rap sheet. So when I get when we go to interview him and I'm sitting in front of him, he comes. I never I've only seen pictures of him, but when he walks in, he was really like I said intimidating. He was like 350 pounds. Uh, he was really strange looking. And like in other yeah. words, he was like he was a mixture of different nationalities, and you couldn't even figure like if you look at him, you wouldn't know what nationality he was. And his eyes had this strange; his eyes were a strange color, like almost like a greenish, greenish gray, and just like a weird guy, like a guy you wouldn't forget. Mm-hmm. His face you wouldn't forget. And of course, he was a big guy; he was probably like six five, three hundred fifty pounds. And what does the room look like that you're sitting in? A uh, small room, maybe, I don't know, 10 by 10 with a plastic table and plastic chair. Just bright white lights. Yeah, no lights. Just, a, you know, regular ceiling, iridescent light. And you're sitting there in the chair waiting for him to come inside. Yeah. And when you're sitting there, what are you thinking? What's going through your head? How do you feel? You know, I'm trying to figure out if what he said on the phone, we verified some stuff already. So I know he's got some information. He may look to embellish, but... The fact that he, you know, what what I always say was one of the things that made me think that he was going to give me information, that he was on the level was when he gave me Eton's name, he screwed up the name. He said it, he incorrectly said Eton's name, um, both first and last name. And I thought to myself, if this guy was lying to me just to get me up there, he'd make sure he'd have the name correct. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, otherwise, I would say this guy don't want to talk about. He can't even say the, the kid's name, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that he screwed up the name, butchered the name, gave me some indication that maybe this guy's on the level. And like I said, he said he knew what happened to the kid. And he later on told me how he thinks the kid was actually abducted. But on the phone, he says, I can't tell you about the exact abduction. He said, but I could tell you what happened, what I saw happen to the kid later on. So that, again, kind of perked my interest because mm. he didn't say that. <clears throat> I saw, I know he got taken here and this, and, you know, he, he, he kind of, so every, what he said on the phone kind of made me yeah, believe he had some out. information for me. So now you're sitting in this room, white lights, there's cops around you, like <clears throat> other, other COs that are in the room. No, right? they didn't come in. I had one, one detective with me. So it's you and one other detective. Yeah. And you're standing there. Yeah. And you're sitting down in the chair, and then the all place. of a sudden you hear the door open. Yeah. And you see Tiny walk in. Right. And what does he look like? What does he dress he, he's like? like? He's like, he's in the the inmate clothes, khakis, I guess, like a greenish outfit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was sloppy, sloppy dressed, you know, sloppy uh, face appearance, and just big, and big and nasty, like a big, like a big, tough, ugly biker. That's hmm. what he looked like. And so he sits down across from you. Right. And then what do you guys discuss? So basically I told him I knew what he did, and which which was the sodomy on his kid. I said, and, you know, everybody makes mistakes. And, you know, like I tried to make believe it was no, not a big deal. 
you know, wow. have to kind of like win this guy over. Is that difficult for you to do? Yeah, man, that's difficult. You see, you have children yourself. Mm -hmm. Did you have kids at the time? No. So, no. oh, my, I, excuse me, I did. I, I had one kid at the time. Yeah. A, a baby, presumably. Yeah, yeah, a baby. He was a baby, yeah. So you yourself have an infant. Yeah. And then you see the pictures of what this guy did to his own child. Right. Are you, is your, are you angry when you look at this guy? Like, Yeah, you put that on the side, though. Because, again, if he, if he gets an indication that I'm just joking around with him and I'm just trying to elicit information, he's going to close up. So, you know, I try to win him over and tell him, hey, we all make mistakes, whatever. You know, things like that happen. And wow. stuff, sometimes you can't control yourself. And he, he fell right into You know, he believed it. He's like, yeah, you know, happens. And, okay. And then we went on to go into his story. Did he talk about any of his crimes that he had committed that he was in there for? Like when you were talking about it, and you know, obviously he said, yeah, you know, it happens, whatever. But did he go into detail? Any other detail? Or like talk about it at all? Was he there did. any other? He wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't too shy about it. Was that yeah. is that bizarre to you that he yeah, would yeah. talk about such a vile crime like with a virtually you know, a stranger? Uh, is it bizarre? I guess it's bit, it's bizarre to me. But if you put yourself when you, when you take yourself out of your own mental state and you put yourself in his mental state, it's not the most crazy thing in the world, you know? Like, I, he, I think he felt like he was talking to a guy like himself, similar to himself, you know, like a guy who's on the edge and not a legit guy, not a good guy. Was he remorseful in any way? No. No. You kidding? No. Not at all. Crazy. Not at all. So you get this sense from him, and I mean, without being too graphic, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, maybe we can edit it out if it's too wild, but did he say anything to you about his crimes that he committed that, like, you remember any of the words that he said? No, I don't, I don't remember the words. I mean, basically, he if admitted what he did, you know, it was, it's all on record, so he knows, I mean, I told him, I, I've, I saw what you did, I've, I've gone through your, your, uh, your case. You know, um, and he was fine with it. You know, he knew I would obviously, and sure. he was fine with it. And and he had done other stuff. He had done drug crimes. He had done robberies, strong arm robberies. I mean, those things seem pale in comparison. Compared to, to that, was nonsense, right? Yeah. But but I mean, he was a gun. You know, he was a gun guy. He was just a psycho, wrong guy. Yeah. So then guy. you now pivot and you say, okay, so what's going on with Adon? Is that was that his name, Adon? Eton. Eton, sorry. Right. So now you go to him and say, hey, what's the deal with Eton? Yeah. And then what does he say? So basically, the story he tells me is that he was a, he was a vice president of a motorcycle gang. Um, and the, it was a 1% motorcycle gang. And I forgot who they were attached to, uh, the Mongols, the Hells Angels, but they were like attached to one of these major gangs. And uh, somehow they got the contract for lack of a better term, to secure these houses up in Yonkers and Westchester, these mansions. And in the mansions were, what was going on in the mansions was these satanic uh, parties, satanic sex parties, drugs were involved, and Tiny and his motorcycle gang were there to secure the perimeter in case any cops were called and attempted to get into the party and break it up or lock people up or any other people were just going to try to crash the party. So they're doing private security for a satanic cult. Right. In a mansion in, you know, New York City. Yeah, Yonkers or Westchester, both of them. I mean, that's, it sounds pretty unbelievable. Like, when he told you this, were you like, 
yeah. Like, what was your your feeling when he's saying this to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I didn't find it that um, that unusual. I, it's not something that was out of the realm of what I think could be going on. Hmm. <clears throat> because he had given me a lot of information regarding, like, he was very specific. And although I had never really dealt with any kind of satanic stuff, but being doing narcotics for a lot of years and drugs and uh, dealing with uh, different nationalities, um, you run into these uh, nationalities that do this blessings on the on the drug carrier, so they think they become invisible and they worship these uh, entities to protect them. Like we'd bust in a house and you see like this altar and it'd be all of these spiritual things on it. And that's something, I don't know who these spirits are that they're praying to, hmm. but kind of cultish and kind of on the level of satanic stuff. So you've seen ritual rooms before, right. when, you know, when it comes to other things in your job, you know, drugs and stuff. But right. so when he tells you, oh yeah, we were doing security at this mansion for a satanic cult. And then how does this tie in with the greater part of right. the story? So at some point he becomes friendly with the people that are paying him to secure the, secure the premise, him and the president of the club. And he gets to run, a, not only the run of the outside of the place where they're securing, but he gets to go in and out of the building, out of, of the houses, because they know him now. In fact, he becomes so friendly with them that he takes up with that cult and he becomes religious or whatever term you want to use. He becomes enamored with what's going on there. Um, and like I said, what's going on there is not only the satanic rituals or prayers or music, and it's sex and drugs. And that's what, what was the allure for him, the drugs and the sex, right? Mm -hmm. And because of his persona of being a big, strong, tough guy um, and a protector, I guess people involved with the cult were attracted to him too. But again, he he come he, he runs the security and he runs it in and out. So the way the kid ties up, <clears throat> excuse me, the way the kid ties up into this is that he, at some point, is in one of the houses, and he's watching this satanic. Uh, ritual on the on this stage that they have built in the house. And they call out the kids by name, the little Eton kid. Now, they call him out, and at the time, he didn't realize who the kid was, although he recognized the name, but he didn't know who it was. They call this little boy out. They do some kind of measuring with some kind of rope that they use for the ritual, and they're going to sacrifice him. They put him on an altar. He he doesn't see the actual sacrifice. Supposedly, he knows what's going to happen, but he didn't want to see it. According to him, and he leaves, which again is right up the alley of, to me, ranks some truth because a lot of bad guys when they give a confession, they'll put themselves right up to the scene of the crime, but take themselves away from the actual crime. Mm. So had he said like, yeah, I was there, I saw the whole thing. He might not be thinking like, oh, I could be implicated in this, and that might ring as it might be a false confession, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I think he saw the whole thing, but I think right. in his head, he's figuring, let me just say I saw up to that point. But that makes it almost more true to you. That's that, made it almost more true to me. That he says, you know, I, oh, I left. I didn't see that part. It's right. like, oh, you really saw some shit. Why else would you be protecting yourself? Right. Wow. And right. so he says that he leaves this satanic, you know, ritual. There's no way he left it. He right. definitely, I mean, if this guy's going to. I mean, if he's doing that to his little kid, he doesn't care. Yeah, about who gives a shit? Yeah, yeah, there's no care. way. No. So he basically sees this missing child get ritually sacrificed in a mansion for a satanic cult. Right. And then he tells you this and says, so I'm like, that's what happened. Right. What do you do with that information? All right. Uh, he was very hard to, what, what happened is I wanted to verify, obviously, what happened. So he gives me names. All the people that he gives me are dead. Convenient. Yeah, convenient. Um, and he said, you know, a lot of the things he said then, you know, he was a really, he was a bright guy because he said stuff back then that I had never heard of, you know, up until recently. He talked about the Bohemian Club or the Bohemian... Uh, Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove. Mm -hmm. He talked about the Bilderberg Group. Yeah. And this is in the mid-1990s. Stuff I'd never heard about. Mm -hmm. And there was no internet. Uh, and, and even if there was, he wouldn't have access to it in, in Attica, mm -hmm. especially in the early days. when. It, so he was a, a well-read guy, but he this was information he said he had learned later on from being involved with the cult. And uh, similar to like what Epstein was doing, like uh, or supposedly doing was compromising people, have people compromise. Mm -hmm. So what was difficult for him was to give us names of people because everybody used a different name. Everybody used a, a fake name or a nickname. Hmm. The names that he did give us when we tried to find them or looked them up, they, some of them had records for pedophile stuff, but they were dead. Others had no records but were gone, couldn't find them or dead. So it was difficult. You know, it, was, it wasn't easy. And he was hard to... It was hard to verify a lot of the things he said. But at some point, what we did was, yeah, I said, you have to give me something. I can't get you out of jail. You have to give me something that we could verify. So he gave me two cases that were really interesting. So one case was, so at this point, he's, you know, at, at the point of after the kid, he becomes pretty heavy involved with this cult. And... He gives me a case that was, he says, okay, I'll, I'll give you something. We sacrificed a girl, meaning him and the, his president of bike, the president of the gang, the biker gang, him, the president, and a couple of the other bikers. They sacrificed a girl in Forest Hills Park, he says. And, and he gives me an approximate year and approximate month. He said, you know, he didn't remember the exact year, which I kind of get. And he didn't remember the month, other than there was a lot of snow on the ground. So by the time he gave us this, the precincts have all changed their their locations, and things have changed. And one precinct isn't this doesn't cover the same thing as it used to years ago. Everything's changed, and everything, of course, was on paper. There was no computer stuff, and so that was going to be a hard case to find. But a guy I knew in one police plaza, he was an old uh, old time guy who was a civilian. He finds the so let me backtrack. So what Tiny says is, so we sacrificed this girl, he said. He didn't know her name. He said, but she had a name of her son tattooed on her back. 
that he remembered. And girls with tattoos was kind of unusual back. This was, so this happened in like the early 80s when this girl was supposedly sacrificed. He said she had a, she had a tattoo of her son's name on her back. He said, and we used a, a sword from like the Middle Ages. A sword? Yeah, they, they, uh, they impaled her with a, with a sword. And he said, what he said, was, it wasn't sharp. It had a, like a flattish edge. He said, but it was so heavy. He said that we knew we'd kill her with it. She thought she was going to be like initiated or blessed when they did it, when they did this to her. She willingly laid on this table in the, in the park, you know, like those cement tables that the people play checkers on and chess yeah. on. She willingly laid there and she thought it was going to be like a bloodletting where they just were going to take some blood from her and do some kind of crazy thing. And she thought they were going to bless her with that heavy sword. But what they actually do is they, they stab her with it. But it's not like a stab because it's not really sharp. But they crush her. Yeah, they just impale her, basically. Right. So when this guy finds the case, sure as hell, he finds the case of a... Uh, what he did was, I guess, he went through all the winter months and then he was able to find this case and sure as hell there was snow on the ground on this particular date and he, um, the girl has a tattoo on her back, just like he said, and the autopsy had a crushed uh, chest cavity, just like he had said. And the only one person was interviewed at the time and the person interviewed was the president of the biker gang. And the interview basically said, so-and-so says that he saw this female victim in the park wandering around. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> so-and-so said he saw this female victim in the park. The gunshot ringtone. That's my ringtone. I mean, that's all right. <laughs> it brings uh, up some memories for you. Yeah, You're exactly. like, oh, nice. Yeah, it keeps me on my The toes. good old days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, so basically... So they find her body. They find it has her body. a crushed chest cavity. The autopsy said that she had a crushed chest cavity, just like he had said it was. In, in a wound, like an in, like <laughs> some type of penetration yeah, from a, it's from a, a weapon? Yeah, from a blunt, uh, blunt uh, object. Crushed the chest, just like he said it would. So that panned out exactly to what he said. And they right? talked to the president of a biker gang. Yeah, the witness, the only witness, not witness to the homicide, but a witness to seeing her around the area was the president of Biker Gang. And what did he say? In the in the report, he just said that he had seen her in the neighborhood. Not that he'd killed her or any of obviously. So there was never an arrest made on it. That's wild. And so this guy that you talked to, Tiny, said, that was me. That was them, him and the, him and the president and the, his other biker guys. What? Right. And so you verified that he did so that? So we verified that that case existed. Did you ever ask him, <clears throat> why did you sacrifice this woman? Yeah, I'm sure I did, but I mean, it was all, you know, everything went back to the satanic. Like he was bought, you know, like heart and soul in that in that satanic crap. And did he ever say like what he got from this? Like what they did for him? Like obviously he's giving them like drugs. He's obviously a pedophile, so I'm sure he's getting access. Well, that was to a big deal. That that was, you know, like according to him, everybody. I don't know about everybody, but a good percentage of the people involved with not just sex, but illegal sex and bad stuff. Wow. Like with children, right. non-consensual stuff. Right. right. Wow. Right. And he's doing this 
I guess, so I guess he gets involved in this thing. He's a, he's a psycho is wanting to use the group to get access to this illegal sexual activity. That's what that was a majority of assault, things like that. And so he's basically willing to do anything that the group asks him to do. Well, at some point he becomes enamored with the devil aside from the other crap. So he's truly bought into... Yeah, that's what I meant by he's bought and sold into this devil stuff. To the actual dogma, I right, guess, or like yeah. the, the literature of Satanism. Right. And he knew his, you know, he was, like I said, he was very schooled. And so he, so do you think that he believed that if he sacrificed this woman in the park, that he would be doing something for the devil or that he was doing a right. service for them? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's insane. Yeah, and where did they find the, the the victim? In Forest Hills Park. It was where was she? Was she? Did, did they dispose of her, or was she just? They in... just left her in the park in the snow. Whoa, I mean that is crazy. Mm-hmm. And so he said there were two cases that he gave you for right. verification. So that was one. What's up, guys? We're gonna take a break really quick because I need to tell you about one of my favorite new products in 2024. It's called Zipix. Yes. Zipix is a nicotine-infused toothpick. Now, if you know me, you know I like to indulge in a little bit of nicotine from time to time, okay? That's true. I don't like to smoke it. I don't like to vape it. Obviously, those things are very bad for your lungs. They're bad for your health. They make you feel bad when you work out. Not good. But nicotine on its own has been proven in scientific trials to actually improve neural communication, improve cognitive function, improve sharpness, improve mental clarity. Look it up. It's very, very interesting research. Anyway, back to Zipix. This is a nicotine-infused toothpick, okay? This is probably my new favorite way to get my little kick of nicotine. It's absolutely amazing, and it's great because you can use it anywhere at any time. It's very, very discreet. You just pop it in, and immediately you're getting whatever flavor you've purchased. This one right here, peppermint watermelon. Tastes amazing. They have six different flavors. They're all fabulous, and they all do the trick. Zipix is great for a couple reasons. If you're like me and you don't like to smoke or vape, Zipix is probably my favorite way to deliver that nicotine fix right to your body. It feels absolutely amazing. It looks cool. And also on top of that, I sometimes get food caught right in this little tooth right here. I always carry flossers with me. I always carry toothpicks with me. But now I have two in one. Boom. After dinner, I'm getting a little fix and I'm getting food out of my teeth. I mean, that's a that's a win-win right there. Two, it looks cool. It's discreet. While you're driving, you pop a Zipix in. You're feeling good. You're cleaning out your teeth. What do you want more than that? Secondly, if you're someone that maybe does smoke, maybe you do use vapes, maybe you do use cigarettes, you're going on a long flight. You're going to be stuck somewhere. You're going to be at a funeral. You're going to be at a wedding. You're going to be who even, a baby shower for your baby, and you can't be ripping cigs at your own baby's baby shower. I mean, that looks insane. So what are you going to do? Pop a Zipix in. Now you're getting your nicotine fix, and you're feeling good. Now what if you're someone that doesn't even like nicotine? Zipix has something for you as well. They have B12 and caffeine-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. That's totally fine. Zipix has helped tens of thousands of customers in leading a way to a healthier lifestyle that, you know, maybe they currently vape or use cigarettes, and they can probably help you too. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, get a nicotine-infused toothpicks, okay? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code GAGNON, G-A-G-N-O-N, at checkout. Your lungs will be glad that you did. You must be 21 years old to order, and I just want to say this as a warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Now let's get back to the show. What we needed to do was we needed somebody else. We were looking to see if somebody else could verify his story. And at this point, most of his... uh, 
most of his biker guys that were involved were dead. <clears throat> In fact, one of the guys who was a, a biker, he was a, a black guy, his name was, they used to call him, they called him Lucifer. That was his nickname. And he actually drove a hearse. And he was a, he worked for a funeral home. And one of the, I knew a sergeant in the police department that was a, worked in a funeral home. He was a, uh, a mortician. And his side job was working in, in a funeral home. And just, you know, out of curiosity, I said, yeah, we have a guy in Lucifer, he drives a, drives a, a hearse. He knew him. He knew who he was. He hadn't seen him, but he, he knew who the guy was. Um, and he knew that when he died, they had a big biker procession for him, for the guy Lucifer. But obviously we couldn't talk to him at this point. He was gone already. <clears throat> but it's such a, I'll tell you what a small world it is. <clears throat> so I used to work out in a gym in, in Ridgewood, which is where his biker gang had a, a, a one of their major clubhouses was in Ridgewood. Ridgewood is borderline Brooklyn, Queens. Right. And this is Lucifer's? No, Tiny. Got it. Tiny's gang was in yeah, Ridgewood. Yeah, which was Lucifer's also. Got it. Right, they were all in the same biker gang. Um, and in the course of one of our conversations, I asked him something about guns. And he said he, he, he had bought a gun, the last gun, or one of the guns he bought, he bought from a guy, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll never forget. He said, I bought it from a guy named Harry, who's a big... Uh, Puerto Rican guy named Harry, big muscular guy. He bought his uh, last gun from him. So I used to work out in the gym on St. Nicholas Avenue, which is in Ridgewood. And downstairs was a boxing gym, and upstairs was a weightlifting gym. And there was this Puerto Rican guy named Harry that I used to be friendly with. And um, I said, it's such a small world, but it's, it I doubt. I, it's almost yeah. impossible, right? I go, and I hadn't been in that gym for years because I had already moved out of the area, moved. And, but I spent a couple of days going back and forth to the gym looking for Harry, and I see him. And I hadn't seen him in many years, and he, he was, like I said, we knew each other, and he gave me a big hello and uh, hugged me. And I said, yeah, you don't get a name Tiny? And he says, yeah, I think so. I said, you ever sell him a gun? And he knew I was a cop. Harry did. And he knew I was a, wasn't looking to get him in trouble. And he said, yeah, I, I sold him a gun. Um, and he remembered the gun, and he remembered. So <clears throat> that just verified that Tiny, another thing, he was telling me the truth about who he got the gun from, when he got the gun, what kind of gun, all of that was on the level. Hmm. But the other thing he we, we verified with him was we were looking for somebody to who was involved with the security of the building and who, who might have seen some of the stuff that he was talking about. So he gives me information on one of his biker associates. Um, this guy was, he was a black guy and he was doing time already for, I think he was doing time for a shooting or possession of weapons. He was, and he was a bad guy too, really bad dude. So he was in jail already. So that guy had nothing to, he had no reason to give us any information. Mm -hmm. And I told Tiny that. I said, well, this guy's going to tell us to go F off. Yeah. If we go to ask, talk to him, right? And he said, no, no, no. I'll tell you what you can use as leverage. So basically, before that guy went to jail, he had got he was playing basketball in a park in Brooklyn. Just like a pickup game. And he got in a dispute with one of the guys he was playing the game with. Now, this is a park full of people. He went to his car, pulled out his gun, came back and shot the guy in front of everybody. Put the gun back in his car and drove away. The whole park knew it was him. 
but everyone was afraid of him. So nobody testified. So he got away with killing this basketball player. So Tony, so Tiny said, "This is what happened. Maybe you could use that." So again, we found the case of the shooting and the DOA basketball player. And this is a cold case that never got right. closed. Right. Wow. Nobody reported it. So Tiny's telling you this, saying, "Hey, you want to talk to someone else that works security at this cult? Talk to this guy." And in order to get him to talk, you got some dirt on him because he did a murder that he never got caught for. Right, exactly. And basically, you can go talk to him and be like, hey, tell us what you know. And if he tells you to F off, be like, hey, we got some shit on you. Exactly. So either you can tell us or we can put this extra charge on your thing and that's going to mess up your life in prison. Add on years or maybe right. make his sentence worse or put him in a different prison altogether. Exactly. So you go. And get, right, and get charged with the crime that he'd never been charged with. And so now you take that and you <clears throat> so go and talk to the guy. I think he was in Sing Sing. Listening. Uh I take a folder and I put a telephone book in the folder. I put the case on it and I tell him this is your homicide from I don't know ten years ago. And here's all your witnesses against you. If you don't tell us about this stuff, this is gonna come back. And what was he like? Talk, talk to me about <clears throat> him. What did he look like? He was a tall, muscular, thin muscular guy. Mm -hmm. You know? Um Black guy, tough guy, been in and out of jail his whole life. Intimidating? Yeah, being, mean guy, you know. He's a tiny friend. Wow. So yeah. you sit across from him and you say, hey, we got this case. Got this case, bro. You're going to talk or not? You're going to tell us about, I don't care about this case. I care about this stuff, with the satanic stuff. And what did he say? <clears throat> well, eventually what he said was, I'll write you a statement, which is what I wanted. I and what said, does that mean exactly? Well, I gave him a pad and pencil. I said, write a statement about not only the homicide, right, the book that we have all this stuff on, and I'll get rid of that, and tell me what you know about the satanic stuff. And so if he writes a statement about the shooting in the park, you're able to just get rid of it? No, it, no. If he would have, what we tried to do was arrest him for it. But I had a problem with the police, uh, which I've spoken about in the past, that the case, a lot of it was... Shit can, for lack of a better term, hmm. which is a whole nother story. So he writes down the statement. He writes down a statement about that shooting. And then does he write a statement about the satanic stuff as well? I don't remember if we had him write that or he just told us what he knew. And what did he tell you? Basically what Tiny told us. Not about the kid. He wasn't involved with that. He didn't see that. But he told us it was a, it was a satanic cult operating in Westchester. Uh, how involved with the satanic stuff. He wasn't as involved with as Tiny was. He was. He just knew it existed, and he was doing security, and he'd go in and have sex and drugs in there, and that was his uh, his participation. Did, but did him or Tiny ever say what the satanic cult like did day to day? Did they say what they wore? Did they ever? They say... They were legitimate people during the day, mm -hmm. if that's what you mean. Yeah, and they just had regular jobs. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they had high, high. They were influential people. What do you mean? Well, some of the people, one of the, per, one of the guys was related to one of the DAs, supposedly. Manhattan DA at the time. One of the younger guys that was involved. He was related to the district attorney of Manhattan? The a past district attorney. Right. Right. Um, there were doctors involved. I mean, these were... And again, Tiny didn't know them by name, although the names he did give us when we rechecked them, they were people with substantial means. They were legitimate people. So these are like wealthy, elite people right. in New York City. This is not like a little Joe Schmo no. pedophile living no. under the bridge. This is 
Right. It's These are like elite, people, powerful people in right. New York. Like they would have no connection to Tiny, other than other than him being a bouncer, basically. Right. Wow. Yeah. So now you get this information from Tiny. You're able to go get this other bouncer that he knows, this other security guy to talk. You're able to verify Tiny's story. And basically you're able to say, okay, both these stories are, or the story is factual. There was a satanic cult that's operating in Westchester. Do you go back to Tiny and ask if it's still operating? Like, what do you do now with that information? Well, now we want to, we want, well, we, what, what we tried to do was we tried to interview the, the, see the cult, the, the cult was a spinoff of a cult called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. The Process Church and, of the Final And Church. that was the cult that Berkowitz supposedly, David Berkowitz from Son of Sam, who, mm. who did the Son of Sam shootings. Mm. That was the church or the cult supposedly that he was involved with. So the satanic cult is an offshoot of the Son of Sam serial killer, and he was also involved in a different cult. Well, the, the ba- Process Church. Basically the same cult. Right. Right. Wow. And that's, I mean, that's insane. Yeah. So just before we get to Son of Sam, because that's, I mean, that's pretty wild that he, you're connect, you're now talking to a guy that was basically in the cult that he was also in. Right. Do you try to investigate this? Do you try to close the case of Eton? Like, what is the next steps? The next step was we had to bring it to the DA and see, what, you know, um, how far we can run with it, basically. And and no one was, no one was very, you know, it was still Eton bodies wasn't 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 found at this point mm-hmm. it never was actually but at this point it absolutely wasn't found um and it, it, you know it it was hard it's we don't have a lot of substantial stuff to go so at this point who do we go after for argument's sake the people that killed the kid we don't know who they were mm-hmm. right tiny's given us names they're so all dead for the most part all of them are dead uh his friend, the guy in jail that we interviewed, the black guy. He's already they, in jail. And the DA was, they weren't, they weren't, to be honest, they weren't very interested. Was Tiny able to tell you the location of the mansion? Like if he's... He gave us locations, uh, not exact locations. And we did the best we could. He gave us a location of where, where some of the bo- other bodies were buried in, regarding the cult. And it was upstate New York, and the guy whose name he gave us was an unusual last name, an Italian, a long Italian name, and it was unusual. But I had remembered it because I went to school with somebody with the same last name. So I f- we found the guy. We found the house, upstate New York. And the, the associate of Tiny's had since been dead, but the father was there, living there, an old guy. And we told him we wanted to dig around, you know, or look around in the yard, and he let us. And um, we didn't find anything just by ourselves, but then we did the ground-penetrating radar, and we saw where there were possible dig sites, but we couldn't get a warrant. They won't let us get a warrant to dig. Really? Yeah. Are you confident that those ground-detecting radar would have brought about something based off your experience? It's hard to say, you know? I mean, the old man could have been building, but he cut us all. He wouldn't let us dig on our own without a warrant and then we couldn't get a warrant wow so he let you dig around look just, around like uh, he look. let us look around he won't let us dig hmm. in the yard i and don't think he was involved to be honest right. the old man i just think one of two things maybe he didn't want his ground disturbed 
or he could have maybe just been protecting his son's name and they wow. wanted to protect didn't want it you know do you know anything about how the son died no I, I might have known I, I don't remember though to be honest wow so now you find out from Tiny, he says, look, I know where this kid went missing. You're able to verify the story. You're able to find a place where apparently the bodies have been disposed of. How were you able to find the names of the people that were in the cult, like the doctors, the people related to the DA? Like, how did you put those pieces together? Well, some of the names he gave us. Tiny knew some names. Wow. Yeah. Tiny and did you ever go names. investigate those people? Like, Yeah, like most of them were gone, dead or, or just out, off, the, off the grid. Now, most of them. Yeah. Were there any that were alive? There was uh there was a there was a guy who was involved on the auto dealership. I always think it's in California. uh I always want to say it's in Florida, but I think it was actually in Long Island. Mm -hmm. It was a dealership in Long Island. And my detectives and um went out to speak to him and he lawyered up right away. He didn't want to speak about it. And subsequently they went back maybe several months later or a year later to talk to him again and they had sold the dealership and according to the people that bought the dealership they said they sold it like shortly after my guys went to see him mm. and that had been in the family for many years did they say he sold it like in a rush in a rush for, yeah for a low off. price or something yeah i don't know if, what the price was but he got they got out of the business wow and then just kind of disappeared yeah Really? So you were never able to find the guy again? No, they, they like I said, they spoke to him the one time, but he lawyered up. And then just... Then there's just a beer. Wow. Which didn't, wouldn't matter anyway, because if he lawyered up the first time, he wasn't going to talk to us. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. So now, what do you do with this information? Like, you believe that there's a cult, you have this, you know, peripheral information. Do you pursue it more? Does this offer any leniency to Tiny, this psycho pedophile? Like, what happens with the case? I mean, basically, it just became a cold case. We 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 were stonewalled. We got, you know, um, we tried to interview Berkowitz, see what his relationship was and what he knew, and uh, they the the department wouldn't let us go speak to him. Wow. And why don't you think they let you speak to him? My personal opinion is because they believe, or I believe, well. I believe there were more shooters than Berkowitz. I don't know if, how many, but I believe there were more shooters, and I think the department was satisfied with the one arrest, and the shootings were stopped, and the case is closed. And I don't think it'd be good publicity if 20 years later we find out there's four more shooters on the loose. Wow, but you weren't going to talk to him about the shooting necessarily. You were going to talk to him about the, you know, the satanic cult. Yeah, but really we wanted, you know... It tied into his shootings, and wow. he had talked about satanic cult in the yeah. past. Okay, so so, the, so you believe that the, some of the people that were involved with the satanic cult, I guess one, do you believe that there was in fact a satanic cult? Do you believe Tiny's story? Yeah, and so in that case, you believe that there's people that were involved in the satanic cult that ritually killed children that are still walking around New York City completely free. Yeah, I don't know. How, I don't know how often the killing of the children is. To be honest, I mean, uh, although I wouldn't. I don't put a pass on You kill one child. I mean, it's, yeah. I and again, maybe, you know, the whole, listen, Eton, Eton Pate's case has been closed subsequently with an arrest. Um, there was a guy, many for many years, they thought a guy named Jose Ramos kill, killed him. He was a convicted pedophile. He had, uh, they had caught him in Pennsylvania uh, luring kids into a, a dilapidated school bus that he lived in. So he was, a, and he was, 
his girlfriend was Ethan Peters' babysitter. Mm. So this guy, Jose Ramos. So for many years, he was the prime suspect. That's a pretty good lead. Yeah, yeah, really good lead. And uh, everyone thought he, he did it. The, even Eton's father used to mail him a picture of Eton every Chris, every every Eton birthday, and say to Ramos, "Where's my son?" And I wouldn't mail him a picture. That seems like well, that's probably what this guy wanted. Probably, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. include a picture. At all. Yeah, I mean, come on. Maybe, yeah, but any whatever he did, but of course Ramos never got back. To, Ramos was in jail already on For, another case, okay. another kid case. So he never got, you know, he never. Uh, and he had spoken to people in jail saying he had sex with a little boy the same day that Eton disappeared, a little blonde boy. Mm-hmm. So he implicated himself in a lot of in a lot of respects. Jose Ramos did. Was he ever convicted for the disappearance of Eton? No, and he was no, and he was never charged with it. But and what, he never confessed to it directly. No, well, he spoke to other inmates, never about killing. Or Eton, but he had said that he had brought a little boy up to his apartment that looked like Eton. He had sex with him, and then, strangely enough, he said something to the effect that he then he put him on a bus or a train either to Westchester or Yonkers. I forget which one he said Westchester, mm-hmm. which ties into this other. You know, that's where the other stuff is Westchester and Yonkers. Whoa! Now that could be a coincidence, right? I mean, he could have just said that, but but in 2012, a guy uh, whose first name escapes me but his last name was Hernandez, he confessed to grabbing Eton on the day that Eton disappeared and killing him and putting him in a garbage can and supposedly, uh, maybe not a garbage can, putting him in a box, I think, a cardboard box. And uh, he was subsequently arrested on his based on his confession. And his first trial was a hung jury. They couldn't convict him because he had mental, he, he had, he's a mental Got all kinds of mental problems. He's been mm-hmm. on medication, and he's he's a confirmed mental mm-hmm. deficient, right? Uh, so the first trial was a hung jury, and then they tried him two years later, or three years later, in like 2015, and they convicted him. So wow. Hernandez is doing time for the Eton Pates. Wow. Now, my personal opinion is, I'm not taking. I'm not saying the detectives didn't do a good job on it. Obviously, I didn't even know I was. I never got to look at the case, and uh, but my personal opinion is, Tiny's story is not far-reaching. It's very possible. Hmm. Hernandez might not be guilty, and Tiny might be guilty. Wow. Tiny's people, Ella. That is wild. So what ended up happening with Tiny? I, you know, it's such a strange world, man. It's such a like I said before, it's a small world, right? So. He eventually finishes his time, and he gets out. I didn't keep, you know, I didn't keep contact with him. After I realized they weren't going to do anything with him, I, I couldn't help. I, not that I was going to help him, but I couldn't get him out of jail. Mm-hmm. Nobody, you know, I couldn't run any any further with the case, and it just basically. So he, he eventually gets out, and he gets I, out. Yeah, he did his time for his. He did the whatever years for for the kid. This is insane. Well, he he, so he was out probably by like. 2000, probably by the year 2000, he was out. He got arrested probably in like 1984, 85 for the daughter. Mm-hmm. I think his wife flipped on him and she said that she was forced to take pictures and to have sex with the kid. Wow. I believe the wife flipped on him. So 
years later, I'm in the uh, I'm in the Secret Service Task Force. Not doing protection. We just doing cases under uh, investigation cases. And I get a call that one of the groups is doing a a buy, and they wanted they needed another couple of guys to go up or either going undercover with this main guy. Or, and I said, you know, I was doing nothing. I, I took a ride. I was going to go up. You say doing a buy? You mean? Yeah, they were. I think they were buying counterfeit money. Undercover, yeah, sting operation, yeah, right? So, and they had an undercover they were going to send in. Um, so I, I, I get to the scene and I jump in the back of one of the agents' cars, and I look at the guy next to me, and it's tiny. What? Yeah, he was going to go. Uh, Make an introduction or help buy help buy uh, illegal money, uh, counterfeit money. So what do you say when you get in the car next to the scariest I, I was, criminal you've ever been with? I was, and now he's a free man working as an now, informant. Yeah, I was dumbfounded to be honest. It took me a you know it took me a second to like holy. So I look at him. He looks at me and he doesn't like acknowledge me. And I say, Yo, you don't remember me? And then he looked at me like up and down. And then he did. It dawned on him who I was, and um, the case that that case fell apart. It, they, they, he never made an introduction or nothing, but he he became a Muslim in jail, according to him, because he had the uh, the Muslim cap on. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what you call it, mm-hmm. but yeah, he became a Muslim, and he gave me his card. He said, oh, "I opened up this business, and it, the name of the business was." Uh, just just another brother, B-R-U-T-H-A. He said, yeah, this is my new business, just another brother. So I took his card and I kept it, and then 9-11 happened. And my my, my, my office was actually in, in the World Trade Center. So not that that mattered for this, but after 9-11 and they realized that it was a terrorist attack, I called them up. And I, I said, hey, uh, what's your involvement with the Muslim community? And he, 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 uh, he, you know, he, he's a bad guy. So whenever the bad, bad guys find bad guys, that's the bottom line, mm-hmm. you know? It's like a drug addict. You take a drug addict and you put him in a place where there's no drugs, they're going to find another drug addict, right? And he said, well, I know, you know, I know some stuff that's going on. So I, I, I introduced him to an FBI agent. What? And that was the, my, the end of my dealings with him. He said, I knew some stuff that was going on, like... I, I don't know, not specifically about this, but in general. But like terrorism? He, he ha, you know, whatever. He knew bad guys, put it that way. What Let's the just heck? say that. Because that's what he is. He's a bad guy and he'll always be. And you never found out anything? I didn't follow up. No, I, I you know what? If he needed me or if he wasn't happy with the FBI guy, he would have uh, got back to me. I mean, that is crazy. Yeah. <sighs> and then what happens later on is he becomes an Amer- he becomes an American. He somehow anoints himself an American Indian chief. Tiny? Tiny does. And he... When was this? After you set him up with the... Yeah, FBI? years later. Um, I, somebody sent me something about him because I had lost contact. You know, I, I had no dealings with him. But somebody sent me an article about him. So he marries a female and the state of Pennsylvania was trying to take the female's kid away. It was his kid. So he has a baby with a female, another female. He let his, The first wife is gone or the wife that he had the right with the yellow baby. And because of his record, the state of Pennsylvania is trying to take the baby away. 
from the mother. Yeah. Because he's living with this woman. But also away from him. Yeah, away from the both of them. And she had previously had kids taken away because her first husband was a pedophile. What? So this girl's probably also a pedophile, right? Yeah, like, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's just crazy, crazy world, right? So then she meets this other pedophile she meets this named other, Tiny. Yeah. And then... They have a baby. And then the state comes in and goes, yeah, you can't have a baby. You guys are both pedophiles. Right. So do they take it? They took the baby. And he was fighting to get the baby back. And now I know that he's dead. I don't know how he died, but I know he's dead. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, thank goodness, bro. I thought this guy was going to be listening to this podcast. (laughs) That is crazy. Crazy, And when did he die? Do you know? Uh, I'm not sure, but like not that long ago, maybe five, six, seven years ago. That is wild. Yeah. Dude, well, that's an insane. So that's the scariest dude you ever met. That's probably one of the, yeah, I would say he's up there. What's up, guys? We're going to take a break really quick because it's 2024, and it's time to talk about something important. When you are seriously hurt, your injury could be worth millions. Yes, that's right. The world is a crazy place, and one person's negligence can result in another's settlement. And that's why I got to talk to you about Morgan & Morgan. Morgan & Morgan is America's largest injury law firm. They have over 100 offices nationwide and over 1,000 lawyers. Yes, these are the big boys. You know them, you see them, you see their billboards all over the world. If you ever drove down I-90 from Florida to New York, I'm telling you, you've seen the billboards, all right? You've, if you ever watched a UFC fight, you've seen them right on the banner. I'm telling you, these are, the, these are the biggest guys in the game, all right? With over $20 billion recovered for over 500,000 clients, Morgan & Morgan has a proven track record of fighting to get you full and fair compensation. The annoying thing with most attorneys is that in order to submit a claim, you got to call them up, you got to talk to their people, you got to go back and forth on the emails, you got to hope that they see it. They might charge you just to even look at their claim. Here's the cool thing with Morgan & Morgan. With eight clicks or less, you can submit a claim and one of their licensed attorneys will take a look at it and get back to you. It's that easy. It's like ordering something off Amazon. It's just a couple clicks. You can submit your claim very easily and cheap. Yeah, how about $0? That's how much it costs to submit a claim with Morgan & Morgan. Extremely easy, no fee required. So if you are ever injured, you can go check out Morgan & Morgan. Their fee is free unless they win. That's right, unless they win for you, unless they fight and get you compensation, you're not paying a single dollar. That's a pretty good deal. So for more information, go to forthepeople.com slash Gagnon. That's correct. F-O-R, thepeople.com slash Gagnon or dial pound law. That's pound 529 from your cell phone. That's for the people, F-O-R, thepeople.com slash Gagnon or dial pound law, pound 529 from your cell phone. This is a paid advertisement. Now let's get back to the show after the short disclaimer. You had mentioned uh, Berkowitz. Right. The son of Sam. Now, you didn't work on that case directly, but you went through the files, and you knew some people that had worked on that case? Well, so when we got it, it was be- the, the reason I started to fool around with it was because of this. Because of the satanic right. cult. Because of the connection. So, the cult. And would you mind just explaining a little bit who Berkowitz is for people that don't know? Yeah, so David Berkowitz was, he was a serial killer here in New York City. In, and he started the killings in, like, 1976. And he did some... Uh, before he... So what he did was he would kill or shoot at mostly people in lovers' lanes. Guys and girls making out in lovers' lanes. And, um, <clears throat> like I said, it started in, like, 76, in the summer. Uh, that's what I think Spike Lee's movie, Summer of Sam... Mm-hmm. I think it was cool. Yeah. Yeah, because it was in the summer of 76. And really, he had the whole city 
up in arms and nervous because he was randomly shooting innocent people. And girls, um, most of the girls had long, dark hair. So now all these girls were cutting their hair. They were dying their hair blonde. Because um, he, sh he shot about, I think he shot like 14 people. And I think seven of them died or six of them died. So, and like I said, he would not only shoot Lovers Lanes, he shot random girls on occasion. And mm -hmm. they all kind of had the same look. And he would leave notes or he would leave notes at the scene and he would also became, he would write letters to Jimmy Breslin, who was a New York Daily News columnist, a well-known New York guy. And he would write these taunting letters, basically, trying to catch me kind of thing. And he would he would uh, have like satanic words in it or reference Satan and they, they, the letters are kind of creepy and scary to be honest. Mm -hmm. Right. So when he, he eventually gets caught a year later, I think July or August of 77, 1977, um, the cops get a tip. One of his last killing, he parked at a hydrant when he did a shooting and he got a summons. <laughs> And the woman saw a car in front of, front of the air, in the area, and she told the cops, "I don't know if this had anything to do with it, but there was a yellow, I think it was a like a Volkswagen or something, uh, and it had a summons in the window. It was parked at a hydrant, and they tracked that down to his car. And when they found the car, they looked in, they saw a gun in the car, and they waited and they pinched him when they came out. Wow. When he so when he gets arrested in seventy, the summer of seventy-seven, he. He initially says that he was told to do these killings uh, by his neighbor's dog. Mm -hmm. His neighbor's uh, his neighbor's name was Sam Carr, and the dog was telling him to do the shootings. And that's why he got the name of Son of Sam, Sam Carr, the son. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what he initially told the cops, and so he he was basically going under the 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 guise of being mentally. Unstable. Yeah. Oh, a dog told me to right. kill these people. Right. Which sounds obviously delusional. Right. Delusional. But sometime after, he came forward and said, "That's not really what happened. I was uh, to take the blame. I did some of the shootings. I didn't do them all. I had accomplices. In fact, the last shooting they were supposed to be it was supposed to be a snuff film. There was supposed to be a Van Dash videotape in this, and he." Didn't give names at the time, but he at some point was probably going to give names up. And then, and he, after giving this information, he subsequently gets his jugular cut in jail, and he doesn't go out of the picture. He doesn't die, but it shook him. He almost died, but it shook him shook him up enough not to talk anymore. Wow. So he never. So he doesn't talk about it, and he's since become a, like a born again Christian. Hmm. And um, I've had some some writing uh correspondence with him oh really yeah but he well, he doesn't he just basically he basically admits to what he did or not all of them but he's very sorry for what he did is basically what he what he always says which i don't doubt that he is i mean i, I believe after all these years he might be a born again christian you know he might have found jesus but in any respect he's not he doesn't want to uh give up anybody Wow. For his own safety, according to him. 
And so he never was on the record to give a statement that there were other shooters. He had just mentioned it to people. I think he put it, I think in an interview, a television interview. Oh, really? Yeah. He said, yeah, there were other people that were working with me. Yeah. And it was a part of the satanic cult. Right. Wow. And right. were there other, like, was it ever confirmed that he was in a satanic cult? He did, Was he open about that? Well, Tiny had said that before he got, you know, years earlier, he had run into Berkowitz, but he never met, he never talked to him. But he had seen him at, at like, some of these functions. So Tiny claims that he was there. Yeah. Was there any other verification that he was a part of the satanic cults? Verification from other members? Yeah, like himself or... Like, did, did uh, Berkowitz ever write it in a letter? Like, he used kind of satanic language. Yeah. But did he ever say, like, I really did these because no. Satan wanted me to? Or no, I think he says stuff, stuff, yeah. Oh, really? Like, that kind of stuff he would say, yeah. But never, oh, I was a part of this no. cult on this street. No. Wow. No. And Berkowitz is still alive? Yeah. And when, when did you talk to him? When did I write letters back mm -hmm. and forth? Uh, the last one was probably, like, five years ago. It's relatively recent. Yeah. He's still in prison? Yes. Will he ever be released? I don't think so. I don't even think he goes up for his parole hearings. Wow. I wonder if he would ever admit to it now. I don't know. I, I'd love to go see him. It's been so long. Yeah. Would you ever try to like... Yeah, I would. ...follow up with him and mm -hmm. be like... Yeah, sure. Hey, it's been, you know, 50 years. Yeah, absolutely, man. You ready to give closure to this thing? Yeah. Wow. Where is he being held? Uh, he... I always... I don't know the name of the... I knew the name. It's it's a, up in Suffolk County. It's a jail up in Suffolk County, New York. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is wild. So you don't think he acted alone? You, you're. Pretty... I don't think he acted alone. I don't know. You know, I'm not a conspiracy guy, really. I don't know if it was a cult. If the cult uh, actually existed to the extent that Tiny believes it did or says it did. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if Berkowitz was actually involved with a cult, but I do believe that he acted in concert with others. Wow. Now, do you think that there's cults that exist within New York City today? Satanic cults? Yeah. Um, yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. I mean, if one existed, you know, yeah. 20, 30-some years ago, why would it stop? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't doubt it, to be honest. Wow. Have you looked into it more? Like, do you have any interest in trying to, like, uncover that, that you know, part of crime within the department? As far as... Berkowitz or just in general terms? Just in general satanic cults. No, I mean, I don't know what, what I mean, it's it's not illegal to be part of a cult. It's right. not illegal to be a cult, so. Right. You know. But if they're committing crimes and things like that, I wonder if there's a, yeah, I wonder if there's something you could do. Like, I wonder if there's something that police could do or detectives could do to try to, like, uncover that or try to, like, infiltrate it. I mean, has there ever been any work to try to do that? I guess it's probably, it's probably not that serious of a thing in their eyes. I feel like it's probably kind of covert. Compared yeah. to you know drugs and gangs. I and mean, and to are... be honest, it's a for lack of a better term, it's it's a freedom of religion, right? Right. So unless they're actually committing a crime. Right, and you would have to get some tip off that they're committing crime. Right. Wow, that's interesting. Is there any other information about the satanic cult that you think would be interesting? Uh. Well, you familiar with Andre Rand at all? Andre mm -hmm. Rand. You ever see the movie? There's a documentary called. Cropsy. Have you ever heard of it? Mm. Have seen it? So he actually lived in Staten Island, this guy Andre Rand. And he worked at Willowbrook. Are you familiar with Willowbrook at all? Mm. Okay, so Willowbrook was this, uh, it was the biggest, it was a, a mental institution, a state run, state hospital mental institute. And it was the biggest one 
in the country at the time. This is going back to the, I think it, I think it opened in the fifties up until the eighties, and um, so this is a time when people didn't treat the mentally ill good, not like mentally challenged and even physically handicapped, right? So I think it was only supposed to have like 4,000 people in it, but it had over 6,000. It was so overcrowded. It's in Staten Island, by the mm-hmm. way. Now it's part of a, a Staten Island College. Took over the facility and changed it, obviously. And Is it still there? The facility's not there. Mm. But the buildings, like the grounds, it was like a 350-acre ground. Wow. Yeah, it was huge. So this guy, Andre Rand, he was a... Uh, he initially was a maintenance guy for the building. And somehow he's able to climb the ladder and become a physical therapist. Which, yeah, that's, but, that's, but that's what was going on there. Nobody qualified for anything. And hmm. Aldo, Aldo Rivera did an expose on it. He was able to sneak in the camera. Uh, so, well, I, I always, I always get, I'm always surprised people aren't more familiar with Willowbrook because I was a kid, but I remember it clear as, a, clear as day. Like watching the TV was a big thing for a long time. So somebody, one of the workers got Geraldo Rivera to sneak in with a camera. And it was probably a huge camera because this was like in, in the in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. I think like 80, maybe 79, 80. But in any event, he filmed the people, the, the patients on the floor in their own urine, in their defecation, naked, banging their heads against the wall. They weren't, they were treated... Horribly, like animals. And he made this big expose. He exposed this, what was going on there. Uh, it was a, it was a big deal for many years. And then they finally closed it in 1987. But it, it remained open. They tried, they changed it, and supposedly they went under different guidelines, but who knows. But in any event, Andre Rand worked there. And he worked there for a few years, and... He actually lived on the grounds. There's like underground tunnels, and he, he was like he was a homeless guy, basically. <clears throat> and he was uh, a suspect for a bunch of kid kidnappings or abductions. Two women, two two nurses uh, were missing and abducted. And they they attributed it to him. He took a bus full of kids going from the YMCA in Staten Island. He put them on a yellow school bus, and he took them to. Newark Airport, and he got there, and I think he didn't know what to do with them, and eventually somebody called the cops on him, and they locked him up, and he did some time for that. Um, but he was like a legitimate suspect for a, a lot of kids missing. In fact, that's where the name Cropsey came from. It's, it was like a, it was like the boogeyman of Staten Island, and people knew him, and were, everybody was afraid of him, and they knew his reputation, and he was mentally deranged. <clears throat> but I knew this woman... Uh, from outside the job that she had a tough life and she was uh, just, uh, she had a tough life. And one day I run into her and she, she knew I was a cop. I, I'd run into her for a long time when I was a cop and ran into the Lower East Side quite often. And I was telling her, yeah, I'm working a couple of missing person cases. And she asked me, she said, have you ever heard Holly Ann Hughes? And I'm like, no, I never heard of her. She said, oh, I was good friends with her mother. She was a little girl, and she went missing on Staten Island. I says, uh, she said, can you look into it? She said, I was really good friends with her mother. And that was like in 1983 or 84 when Holly Ann disappeared. So I look, I grab the case folder, and I look at it, and I see this guy, Rand. And make a long story short, I find uh, 
the last guy to see Holly and Hughes. And he saw Andre Rand that night also. But he never put, nobody ever put Rand and Holly Ann together. They all seen them both at, she, Holly Ann Hughes went to the grocery store to get soap for her mother that particular night. And she never came home. The mother gave her a couple of dollars to buy a bar of soap. And she went to the bodega and she never came home. People seen Andre Rand in the neighborhood, right, right there in front of the store. But mm-hmm. so when I get the guy and I was Rand convicted at that time of other crimes, not Rel- related with children. Yeah. So this guy's a known pedophile, known psychopath. Pedophile, yes. And this girl goes missing, and they see them both on the same night. Yeah, but and they no couldn't. one put it together. Well, not legally. Not nobody would say that he was with her. Got it. They just seen him in the area. Anyway, I interviewed this one guy, and I he didn't want to talk because he didn't want to be known as a rat. And I'm like, bro, you, you understand what you're writing? This isn't a rat. This isn't a drug deal. This yeah. isn't a stick-up. You weren't stick up. two people in a gang and you're yeah. selling out your partner. This guy kidnapped this girl, abducted this little girl. He also, the guy you're talking to had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do He's with it. He's not like he was an accomplice. No, no, no. He, he was, was just, just a, a guy there. He was just a knock-around guy that, you know, a little bit down on his luck. But um, he says, all right, I did. I seen Ali and using his car. In any event, we get the ball rolling. We eventually get Andre Rand arrested. He had, he had been in, I think he had already been arrested for another girl, another little kid at this point. He was already in. But we get him charged with the Holly Ann Hughes case after all these years. Wow. <clears throat> but in the the reason I bring it up because in the course of this case, we realized that he was involved with a satanic cult too. What? <coughs> yeah. A completely different one? Well, we don't even know, but he had all the satanic, uh, where, where he was staying, had all the satanic writings on the walls and all these. Like what? You, you saw it? Yeah, he had like the pentagrams and just satanic stuff. He was another guy that, so a lot of people put, excuse me, a lot of people put the two together. Like he was involved with the same cult. Can you describe and, like what his house looked like or what, well, what any of the stuff looked like? I don't think I went to his house because I think he was homeless. At, well, he was already in jail too many, too long to have a house. Got it. But we spoke to one of a supposed girlfriend who kind of admitted that he was into stuff like that. And we went to where he lived off on the grounds of the Willowbrook and they had like the inscription, the devil stuff on the wall. And so he made, we, a lot of people assumed that it was the same cult and he was doing it, doing that not only for his own benefit, but for a cult benefit. What the hell? <clears throat> I mean, this is crazy. Crazy, right? I went from being like, yeah, there's zero cults in New York, right? Like, it just seems so crazy. Like, crazy. And this whole, like, satanic panic of the 90s. Right. And, and my mom is all over this stuff. Like, she believes, like, there's satanic cults everywhere. And I was, I'm always like, I don't know, Mom, maybe. And yeah. now you're telling me that there's at least one, maybe two or three confirmed satanic pedophile cults of elite people in New York. Well, the head of that... Doing crime. The guy who kind of created that cult, the uh, Process Church, he actually lived in Staten Island for a while. Up until recently. The guy that created it? The guy that created the cult. He was originally partners with... Well, originally he was a disciple of L. Ron Hubbard. What? The guy that invented Scientology? Yeah. Yeah. So this guy's name is Robert DeGrimson. That's not his real name. That's his name that he chose. Robert DeGrimson. Robert DeGrimson. And he uh, was a disciple of uh, L. Ron Hubbard. And he eventually hooks up with L. Ron Hubbard's... Girlfriend or wife, I'm not sure. I don't think anybody knows if that was his wife. In in, in the UK, in England. And uh, 
he steals steals the wife from Elvon Hobbit, and they branch off with a lot of the philosophies of Scientology, but then they go on a different path and introduce. <clears throat> I, I to be honest, I used to know a lot of what they what their belief was. The Process Church, like they believe, like there's four major entities: Lucifer, Satan, Jesus, and I don't remember the last. And there's good and bad and everyone, but basically it's it's the satanic cult. But he, uh, Robert de Grimson, him and the wife split up. In fact, she, I think she died too, but I think she died. He may not, he wasn't, as of very recent, he wasn't dead, Robert de Grimson. But she created that uh, animal sanctuary in Texas. It's a really big animal uh, animal sanctuary. It's In fact, the Obamas got their dog from her. De Grimson's wife? Yeah. What? And, and it's strange that she's, they do a lot of animal sacrifices to process church. And it's strange that she. The wife of the leader owns an annual animal sanctuary. Yeah, a really big one, which the, the, name, the name always escapes me. But what a really big one in Texas. And that's where Obama supposedly got his, when he was in the White House, got his, uh, his dog it's from. It's a weird place he had a dog from. It's a weird coincidence, I guess. Yeah, it's a weird coincidence. Yeah. Bizarre. And, and he lives in Staten Island. I went to see him years ago. What? What? Why? Well, we're doing the case. When we were following up on the Berkowitz and the Eton and all of this stuff, I went to visit him. Now, is the Process Church at this time, is it open? Is it public? Like, do people know about it? Or is it still very covert and, like, still very secretive? Well, I mean, I'm sure it's all, it's all over the internet. Okay. Robert the Grimson's all over the internet. He's got like pages dedicated to him. So at this time, when you go to speak with him, it's already like a public thing. This organization exists, and they're claiming that they don't do any illegal activity. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know who would say that they were part of it, but mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, it's you Google it. I'm sure a thousand things come up mm -hmm. on him and the church. Uh, he had a legit job because I went. I went through his garbage and I got his uh, W-2s and he worked for uh, either either like an electric company, like, you know, uh, a company that either supplies electric to houses or gas to houses or I forgot which. But he had a legit, legit job, a good job, like a supervisor job. Uh, but when I went to speak to him, he wouldn't speak to me. He just made believe, like he didn't understand what I was talking about. And he basically slammed the door in my face. Oh, really? So you knocked on the door? Yeah. And he opened it? Yeah. And what did you say? I said, are you Robert DeGrimson? I'd like to speak to you. Yes. And he didn't even answer. He just stood almost like f faking a uh, dementia. He just kind of looked off in the distance and yeah. then closed the door? Eventually closed the door, yeah. Wow. And what, what was the reason you wanted to talk to him? Was it regarding the cult? Yeah. I wanted to see if he maybe, you know, maybe he's ready to talk. Wow. Yeah. Did you talk to him as like, uh, you know, necessary police work or were you, is this a personal thing that you were like, let me just go see what this guy's doing and see if we can turn it into a case or something? Um, did I identify myself? Is that, is that what you're asking? Yeah. And like, was the purpose of you going, like you were still on the force? Yeah. You were still... Yeah. I was still a cop. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I wanted to talk to him about this as a, you know, as a official case. And could you ever like get like a warrant or like some, a summons? Like um, legally, <laughs> could you ever get a way to get no. him to talk? No. Bizarre. Yeah. This is all very strange. That guy's wife is an animal sanctuary. His ex-wife. Ex-wife, and then he was a descendant of Elron Hubbard and made this thing that Berkowitz was a part of that then spun off into this cult that killed 
Eton. I mean, this possibly. is possibly Khalid a Eton. wild web. And then Andre Rand isn't part of this, I guess, as well. Maybe. Was, Who knows? Was, he ended up getting convicted of the yeah, disappearance of... Yep. Wow. And then you were instrumental in putting that case together. Yeah, but by the time he was actually cuffed, I was transferred out of, there, out of wow. that, that squad. I mean, that must feel good to be like... Phew. Yeah. I, I wanted out. They want uh, The lieutenant and the captain actually asked me to stay in and finish it, but I wanted out. And everything was basically being wrapped up. It was, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I wasn't needed anymore. Wow. I mean, that is wild. There's cults in New York City that are operating. And we have hopefully good police officers that are getting into it and figuring it out. Yeah. And you had mentioned that your office was in the World Trade Center at the time of September 11th, 2001. Seven World Trade it was. I was in Building 7. Yeah. I was I was in the building when it went down, when the first building went down, actually. You were in Building 7? No, I was in the first building that got, the first tower that went down, I was in that building when it went down. Can you talk to me about that day as a New York police officer? Yeah. What what happened? You wake up that morning, it's, what so, is it, Monday? Uh, it was a Tuesday, I think. Okay. Right? You think wake up that morning. That I wake up that morning, and um, every once in a while I take my kids to school, and I took my kids to school that day. And I used to make my own hours, basically. I was mm-hmm. a sergeant. Um, I had those, had a bunch of detectives uh, under me, and, and I worked with the Secret Service doing cases, investigation. And so our office was in Seven World Trade. <clears throat> so I, was, I dropped off my kids. I was actually in the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. No, no, I was dropped off my kids, and I hear that one plane already hit the World Trade Center. But at that point... No one was aware of what was going on. I, we most people thought it was like a a pilot that mm-hmm. got screwed up. A small Cessna, right? Exactly. Blew in the wind, and right. So I was driving to work. Uh, I'm in the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel at this point, and the second plane hit. And now people, the radio was saying basically that it's terrorists. They believe it's terrorists, and now traffic in the Battery Tunnel is a horror, bumper to bumper. So I put my siren on. And I can't, nobody's moving out of my way. They just got nowhere to go. It's a tunnel. So, and this is going into Manhattan? Going into the city. Wow. So, a fire truck pulls, a fire truck is blasting their sirens. And they go, get, they're actually, people actually moving for the big fire truck. So, I jump behind him with my siren, with my, you know, my cherry on the car, and I get out. <clears throat> as soon as I get out, of the tunnel, it's still a horror. So I just pull over into a hydrant, and I run to the buildings, which isn't that far. And no. so once you get through the tunnel, you can see the buildings. Yeah. I, and I, you just I, see smoke. Yeah. I don't remember if you actually see the buildings or see smoke, but I know where the buildings are. I've been working. You know, I, know, I know Manhattan. And so you just park and just, just start over running. And I run to the building. And what are you thinking? Like, what is going through your head at this well, point? Well, what happens is, before I get there, I call my wife at a bodega because my cell phone isn't working. No, no cell. The cell phone went out because the antennas were on the World Trade Center. So all cell phone service, well, most cell phone service went out, and mine went out. So I go into a bodega and I tell the, I ask the guy, I ID myself, and I ask the guy to use his phone. So he gives me a hotline phone. I call my wife, and she's worried. I said, Rita, don't worry, I'm fine. I said, but I'm going to go to the building and help people come out. I go into the building. I, I park the car and I run into the building. I have to ID myself because I'm in soft civilian clothes, and they had it, you know, blocked off for people to get in the building. So I ID myself. I run into the building, the world, one of the towers, 
And uh, I start to go up the steps in the building, and people are coming out. So now I'm kind of like impeding their traffic of coming out. So I was useless going that way. So I went into another staircase, <clears throat> and I opened the door because the door wasn't like wasn't open. I opened the door, and now people start coming out this exit, the, do the, the door that I'm opening. This is in the building, in the lobby, and now people are coming out. And then all of a sudden, the, bell, you, the, the building shook. Like the whole, it felt like, the, it felt like an earthquake, actually. The whole, the whole building shakes, and I see the firemen start running out. So this is the time to get out. So I start running out with them, and next thing I know, I'm on the ground. It's really dark. I mean, I can't even, I tell people, I can't even, you can't even explain. First of all, everything goes silent, because when the building, the building collapsed, the air became so thick, you can't hear anything through that thickness of the of of all the chemical of all the the building. The right? dust, the like dust, it's just right? You can't particles. Hear it's just right. Concrete turned into vapor. Exactly. All right, and it's dark, really, really dark. And I end up on the ground from the impact. I guess I got thrown. I don't even to be to this day. I don't know where I was. Yeah, you know, in in this in this mess. So I get thrown, and um. I always tell the guys, my, my, my students, you know, you hear about people seeing their life pass before their eyes. It's true. Really saw my, my life pass before my eyes. Really? Yeah. What so, did you see? I seen my, like, my whole life go quick right before my eyes. I'm on the ground. I thought for sure I was going to punch out. Uh, and then I really thought about, you know, I really says, look, I'm not, this is not, the, I hate to sound arrogant, but I said, of all the stuff I've done in my career, this isn't going to be the thing that takes me out. And I, somebody put a flashlight, a big, uh, it happened to be a guy from the Austin Explosion Squad, who I happened to know. I didn't know it was him at the time, but I later found out. He was in the Austin Explosion team, and he had this big light that he always carried in his car, and he just flashed it up in the air. And he said, if anybody could see the light, walk towards the light. And I saw it, I got myself up. And I stumbled over to me, grabbed me. He recognized me, but I, you know, I, I, I was kind of out of it. And he brought me in the building. And uh, what happened was, there was a guy throwing up in the building. And that usually wouldn't affect me, but it made me throw up. And to this day, I'm sure that's what saved my life because when he threw up, I started throwing up, and I threw up all this black stuff that I had, a, I had swallowed. Obviously, I threw up. Uh, it was horrible, but I'm sure to this day that's what saved my life. I threw up all of this stuff, and then I had to go to the hospital because I couldn't see. My eyes were all from the broken glass and stuff yeah. that came out. I was screwed up. I went to the hospital. They cleaned me up, and then I went back to the building an hour or two later. And After the building collapsed, you went back? Yeah, after they cleaned me up because we had to start digging. You know, they started digging people out, you know, with the buckets. and. What do you, what are you thinking when you're walking back? to the building after seeing it collapse on you and you almost die. Actually, I'm thinking there were people under the, under the rubble. Wow. Which they, you know, obviously, they find they did find a lot of people later on, mostly, you know, mostly dead people. But the worst part of the story is I never thought to call my wife back. <laughs> and she was watching the TV when the building went down. You asshole. <laughs> I never, honestly, I never thought, no, I just think, felt that she would have felt that I was okay. Not realizing she would know the bill. I'm in the bill. I told her I'm going in the building. And then she sees it collapse. And then, and then she doesn't hear from you. 
Right. And then my neighbors were in my house, my mother, my sister. They thought I was gone, obviously. They thought I went DOA. And so, then I walk. by the time I, I came home late that night, not too late, but maybe, I don't know, 9, 10 o'clock, 8 o'clock. You show up at the house. Yeah. And so what happens when you walk they in the door? They were shocked. They were, you know, crazy. Everybody went nuts. What is your wife's reaction? <laughs> crazy, man. They were all upset, obviously. It was my fault. I really screwed that up. <laughs> it was horrible. So you spent all day digging people out of the rubble of well, the, World the, hospital, Center, the World Trade Center after you almost died because the thing collapsed on you from a terrorist attack. And then, and then I, you finally make it home, totally exhausted, saving lives, traumatized, shell-shocked, and you open the front door and your wife goes, why didn't you call me? <laughs> That's what happened? <laughs> that is insane, dude. It was crazy. Yeah, it was stupid. Yep. <laughs> yeah, terrible. But you know, I actually did try to call, but all the phones were out. All the cell phones were out. I'm there sure was no she accepted that excuse. Was I'm no sure she was like, "Oh, honey, I totally understand." Yeah, don't worry yeah, about yeah, it. yeah don't worry. Everybody was. Uh, That's what she said, right? Yeah, nobody, nobody was there. <laughs> <at me. laughs> that is unbelievable. Yeah, I would be so mad. I come yeah. home after like two hours of a podcast, and my wife's like, "Why didn't you tell me you're doing a show?" And I'm like, "Hey." I'm busy, okay? I'm a professional, all right? I got stuff to do. That's crazy. That's you just accept. Didn't it? That's, yeah, I asked you this question right. before. You have such a funny answer. What's harder, 22 years in the police force or 32 years being married? <laughs> no question. <laughs> <laughs> being married is rough. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. It's not easy. I'm, I'm lucky. I got a good, really, really good wife. Well, I mean, that's the only way to make it. I mean, if you're 32 years, she's probably got to be pretty awesome. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, she's good. Well, she's going to put up with you not calling after you almost die in, yeah. the, in the World Trade Center. Yeah, she's I mean, good. that's crazy. So then where are you at the time that Building 7, where your actual offices, collapses? Well, it, it burned for a long time. I don't know if you remember. Mm-hmm. The building burned for a long time. and then. So uh, you weren't in the building, obviously. No, 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 no. That whole building was evacuated. Yeah, that building was evacuated because that building wasn't in danger, really, mm-hmm. you know, of, of any immediate danger. Right. So it was evacuated. Then eventually it burnt down. And they say that, you know, you know, I'm sure you know the conspiracies that that, you know, that had a lot of, uh, I think CIA had an office in there. Mm-hmm. Secret Service had their offices there. Right. Your office was in there? My, yeah. We were with the secrets. So my office was in there. Yeah. And what did you think of the collapse? Did that make sense to you? Or are you like, hmm, this is bizarre? Uh, you know, I mean, uh, to be honest, I never really gave the conspiracy stuff a thought with this, with the with the build, you know, building one and two and seven. But I don't know so much, but makes so much of what the people say makes sense about why it shouldn't go down. Hmm. Uh, I'm kind of up in the air. You've seen the video of the thing going down at like freefall, like right. collapses really fast. Yeah. But at the same time, it was also on fire for a while and getting debris from these two giant skyscrapers that just fell on it. Right. So I, yeah, I don't I'm know. not an engineer. Me neither. That's really wild. Yeah. And so you go home that night. Are you pretty traumatized? Do you feel like shocked? Do you do you have PTSD from that? Like, what is? What do you feel like your mental state is? At the time, you mean? Yeah. No, really, bro. I was tired. I and we had to get back. I had to be back. At, we were gonna get together the next. My my unit. Well, I was gonna get together the next morning at four o'clock and and work on the pile. Wow. And how well, long did you went back to, went to shower and went to sleep and got up? How long did you work on the pile for? We were only there a couple of days, and they took my whole, my whole unit, my whole division, and they put us in the morgue to deal with the incoming bodies, and uh, and that's where we stayed. And honestly, that was <clears throat> that was a break because even though we're dealing with all the dead people and the dead cops and firemen, um, you didn't we didn't have to deal with that that inhaling the uh, poison every day. 
Which is... Which is, I think, what killed a lot of these. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, that's yeah. wild. Yeah. And now, I mean, as all this time has passed, you know, over 20 years, do you still feel like you have residual trauma from that day? I don't know, to be honest. I really, I don't know. It's a good I, New I York know. cop answer. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not that I'm super tough or anything. I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, do you ever dreams about it? Nightmares? Like, I mean, it, you know, it was like going into the building. You, you, running into the building, you could actually see people jumping off the building because there was a fire up there. And, you know, uh, when we were in the morgue, we saw. Did, I mean, does that, that stays in your mind? You see people jumping out of a building, hitting the ground. I mean, and even in the morgue, there was a, we saw the, a woman that had the tire marks from the plane. Brought him into the into the morgue, and she was a civilian walking or running, and the, one of the tires hit her, and she had like the tire, you know, landing tire, on her, you know, yeah, and we, you know, for months we were there for months. What we did, all I do, not only me, other the other detective and bosses, all we did was deal with the, uh, the dead bodies, you know. Wow, I mean that's remarkable. Yeah. Did you ever go to the memorial? I went before it was finished. I haven't been back. Did that bring up emotions for you? Yeah, it was that. Yeah, it wasn't the greatest. I can imagine it's a probably pretty traumatizing yeah. thing to walk back through there and to feel it and see the videos and yeah. that kind of stuff. I'd like to go back now that it's done. I just haven't, but I will. I mean, that is wild. What yeah. an insane, insane life working on this force. What's up, guys? We're going to take a break really quick because we got to talk about your amazing dick game. Yes, you. You right now. Listen to my voice my deep, soothing voice. You have an amazing dick game. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you know someone with an amazing dick game. Maybe you got a boyfriend. Who knows? But if you have an amazing dick game, there's a way that you can make it better. And that's with the good people over at Blue Chew. Mm -hmm. Blue Chew is an amazing service that basically delivers a chewable tablet that has the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, all that stuff. But this is the chew. It's at a fraction of a cost. And it's never been easier to get your hands on the greatest dick game of your life. Mm -hmm. Never been easier. I'm telling you. You can go to bluechew.com and you can submit all your information to a licensed person, a legit person that will then mail you a discreet, very unassuming, but very, very powerful package. You know what I'm talking about? The powerful package to your home. That's how easy it is. You don't got to go talk to a doctor and be like, yeah, you know, I want... No, -uh. nope, easy. You got to just go on the internet. Yo, bluechew.com. I want to get the best dick given of my life. And that's how you do it. Easy as that. And for the listeners of this show, of this program, you are going to get free first month of Blue Chew. Mm -hmm. You're going to be getting Blue Chew for free. All you got to do is pay $5 shipping. That's a cup of coffee. Black to be delivering that BBC. You know what I'm saying? That's bluechew.com. B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com. Use the promo code GAGNON, G-A-G-N-O-N, and receive your first month for free. That's bluechew.com. For more details and important safety information. And thank you so much, Blue Chew. I'm telling you, man, check out this product. Even if you're one of these people that's like, I don't know, I don't really need it. What are you talking about? It could be better. It can always be better. Let's say you're in the 1% and you're about to be in the 0.01% with Blue Chew. Now let's get back to the show. Who was the, the kingpin that you, that you ever heard of or saw or, or dealt with that was making the most money? Well, the most money was made by the heroin guys. Heroin guys used to laugh at the cocaine guys. Really? Seriously. How much money were the heroin guys making? Like I told you, that one guy, the main guy, he was making $101,000 a day. Wow. $101,000 a day. And he testified to that. And he, you know, because he had, 
he had a, a an accountant that was a junkie that he took care of and cleaned up. But he was still a drug addict. And he was an accountant, and he used to do his books. So he knew every ounce of dope, every $10 bag of dope that went in and went out. Wow. So he had it. wasn't like guesstimation. He knew. This guy had the records of what he was selling. Wow. And who was this guy? Do you remember? Yeah, his name. Well, yeah, his name is Danny from from Alphabet City. Danny from Alphabet City. Yeah, he was an ex-Marine. He was... uh, he went in really young. I think his paper, his parents signed the papers for him, or somehow he got in at a young age. He got out. He was a big guy, man. He was a killer, like like a top guy in the city, one of the, one of the main guys in the city. I mean, yeah, he's making millions of dollars, millions of dollars a year, just yeah, pushing heroin. Yeah, and they and they and at some point he he even he even shook down Colombian, like some Colombian opened up a uh, was doing coke, uh, moving a lot of coke in in Queens. And they met uh, in a club in, in, I don't know if you're familiar, 100 years ago there was a club called 1018. It was on 10th Avenue and 18th Street. Mm-hmm. It was like like a young guy's Studio 54. It was mm-hmm. like a nightclub and a lot of bad guys went there. And uh, It's a crazy story. It's actually, it's in my book, but it's a crazy story. But the Columbia went there with a couple of guys with guns uh, thinking he was going to scare Danny into, you know, lay off. And Danny came in with a whole club of guys, like literally a hundred guys, a hundred. Like his whole people he didn't even know he would pay, just come in just come in with us with your guns. When the Colombian tried to pull out on Danny and scare him, he gave the nod. All his guys turned turned on this guy with their guns. A hundred guys in the club turned on the the turned on the five Colombians. Wow. Said basically, you do what I say. That's wild. That's the kind of guy Danny is. Yeah, the and, tough guy. And how long was he working for? Do you know? How long was he moving stuff? Yeah, he was a long time. He, I mean, long time. He was a kid. They were all, you know, I guys on the east side were young. You mm. know, I mean, it was some older guys, but they didn't last. A lot of them got killed or went away, so they were young. But um, it was different. It was different than the the heroin was different than the coke. It just made more money. You know. Per ounce, you made a lot more money. Per kilo, they sell it in units, which mm-hmm. I think is 90 grams. But per unit of heroin, you made so much more than Coke. And mm-hmm. uh, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, they used to look down on the Coke guys, really. Did you ever talk to this guy, Danny? Like, did you ever? I've, I've never, I've spoken to his people. Uh, I locked, you know, I, see, he basically ran the whole Alphabet City. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So we took, me and my partner, uh, we took off his underlings uh, constantly. And that's how we got involved with the DEA. The DEA had done a case on on Low East Side guys, and they didn't have enough to lock them up. They they arrested them, and the U.S. Attorney said no good. They you know it was it was the the, the Low East Side Puerto Rican guys were buying heroin off Chinese. Sorry, man. <laughs> they were buying heroin off of Chinese, and uh, they didn't have enough to lock them up. So. They came, everybody knew that me and my partner knew everybody in Alphabet City. We were there for many years in plain clothes. We locked up everybody. We had all 100 informants. Uh, so they came to us and they asked, you know these guys? They set up some pictures. I'm like, yeah, this is him, him. We knew them all by name, by nickname, where they lived, what dope they moved. Because people stamped their own dope with their own name. We knew everything. Uh, so they wanted to know if we'd work with them. 
So they actually absorbed us into the DEA, me and my partner, Jeff. Mm. And we worked with them a couple of years, I, we, quite a few years, well, three, four years. But this case lasted a year, a low east side case. Wow. And uh, we were beating them up so bad that we were knocking off Danny's people. He was losing money. You know, like he'd give a couple of thousand dollars worth to his people to sell or $50,000 worth of heroin to sell. And we'd end up seizing it, confiscating it, locking these guys up. So they actually put a contract, they made my partner. And the way we found out about it was <clears throat> there was a, a bank robbery up in Midtown. And the detectives had a, an informant that knew about the bank robbery. So while the Fed, I think it was FBI and, and detectives, were interviewing this CI, he gave them what he knew about the bank robbery. And then he blurted out, basically, by the way, they, they, they're looking to kill these two cops on the Lower East Side. And he gave my nickname and my partner's nickname. And they're like, what? He said, yeah, he's, they're looking to kill him. So they find out, they told us, and they gave us a radio to take home, and they tried to isolate us a little bit. But but there was a hit on you. $50,000 for me and fifty for my partner. But they had a problem. Nobody wanted to, they couldn't secure a hitman, is the bottom line. Nobody wanted to kill two cops. Wow. They were afraid, to, you know. That's, that was a lot of time. So they were supposed to be getting guys, two guys in from the Dominican Republic, but uh, uh, apparently it never transpired. But uh, they put in a couple, of, like they all put in some money, like the main guys put in some money. How but do you they, feel when you find out there's, like, there's a hit on you? I mean, it wasn't surprising, you know. Like it's just. Does it scare you? You know, I, you know, it's when you're young, it's a lot different. I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. I just had to watch out for my cadella, you know. <laughs> Wasn't you know? I wasn't an easy target. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been an easy guy to hit. I mean, I could anybody could get killed, but it wouldn't have been easy. So wait, why? Why would you have been hard to kill? Because I was looking in my mirror. I never, you know, I drive erratically, and you know, I mean, like I said, anybody could get killed. But and I knew guys weren't looking to kill cops for the most part. Hmm. So what happened to Danny? So eventually. So we do this big case on the low east side. We go up on a wiretap with the DEA. Uh, we introduce an informant. An under, we introduce an undercover, a civilian guy, to, to the group. We, tell, we, we don't do it personally because they knew we were cops, obviously, me and my partner. But we in an unmarked van, and we point out a guy. And we say, that guy, well, we had an informant that we trusted. And we, we pointed out to the informant who we wanted to bring this who we wanted him to bring this guy to. So our informant brings the undercover civilian, undercover uh, informant, to meet one of the bad guys. And he says he wants a buy. And he bought a couple of thousand dollars worth and he just climbed up the ladder to some of the top guys, but not Danny. Hmm. Danny was way above, he wasn't touching anything. And he these, insulates himself pretty yeah, well. Yeah, these were all his guys, but he was I'm not touching this stuff, not, not meeting anybody. But when we take, we go up in a wiretap and we end up taking out 40 Alphabet City heroin dealers. Wow, 40. Yeah, yeah 40. Top guys, a lot of money. We see beautiful vehicles. I mean, these cars, these guys were driving back then. Brand new Benzes, uh, Alfa Romeo, and that's before you could lease a car. See, nowadays you see Alfa Romeo, so you gotta yeah, lease a car. Yeah, yeah. But back then, they, you couldn't lease a car. Wow. So these guys were driving, paying for these Cash. vehicles. 
cash. They they had they had mon- big money, way money. We used to call it. so much money you had to weigh it. Wow, you can't count it. You got to weigh it. So that's a flex. Yeah, yeah. They they were making money, but we couldn't get Danny. Danny uh, had a falling out with a couple of the main guys, and he wasn't on the phone at all. So we take these forty guys down, and Danny's not on the phone at all. So he skated, and I was really frustrated. In fact, it caused like some tension with me and my partner because I really wanted him because he was the guy who initiated the hit. You know, it was him that wanted us gone more than the other guys. And uh, he, you know, he just reached me. Like, he was the guy that just, I I really wanted to get him. I never really had dealings with him in the street. I think I only saw him twice, although I I knew who he was, of course, and I've seen pictures of his rap sheet. but, But so after the case gets taken down, I'm at home. And I'm reading the newspaper, and I see that there's a big heroin guy in Williamsburg, Spanish guy, that was cooperating. His last name was Hernandez. I'll never forget. His last name was Hernandez, and he sold a dope called Unknown. And I'm reading the article, and he's like, they're making like this guy to be a major, major guy in New York, and now he's cooperating. And so I says, if he's that big of a deal, he's got to know Danny. And if he's cooperating, you have to cooperate with everything. So I go to the U.S. attorney. I said, listen, ask this Hernandez guy if he knows this guy. And he did. And they were able to get Danny because of that. Wow. So how would that work, hypothetically? I don't know if you know the details, but, like, you have this guy that basically becomes, like, an informant. Who, Hernandez? Yeah, Hernandez. Mm-hmm. So how does his information take down Danny? He just says, like, oh, he'll be at this place or this is where he lives? or Is it that simple? Uh, he Well, he probably said, I did this deal with him, I did this deal with him, I did here. Uh, maybe I got package wrappings with Danny's fingerprints on it. Here you oh. go. So it I wasn't got a phone call. Look at my phone records. Here's 100 calls between me and him. So it wasn't a matter of getting to Danny. It was a matter of proving that he was right. committing crime. Right. Uh, interesting. Right. And that's how he went down. That's how he went down. How did it feel? That... I didn't put the cuffs on him, but it felt really good, man, knowing I did it. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. So how long were you working as an undercover, like, plainclothes officer? I was a plainclothes cop uh, maybe seven, seven, eight years. Then when I was in the DEA, I did a lot of undercover work, you know, where, where not just plainclothes, where actual undercover, where mm-hmm. I bought drugs and faded, uh, fainted selling drugs and... Yeah, the undercover game is a pretty interesting little ripple within law enforcement that I don't think a lot of people really think about. You know, being a obviously uniformed officer, that's very obvious. We see these people. But then there's a whole subset of undercover officers that are basically operating with regular clothing that are working with criminals, going undercover into different gang units, uh, basically observing crime and in some ways are complicit with crime in order to, you know, prove right. that people are, you know, doing illegal things. It's a very interesting thing. Yeah, so can, I like you, it. can you tell me about some of your cases and yeah. kind of like how you got involved and some of the more interesting things that, that happened to you as a plainclothes officer? So <clears throat> when we were in the DEA, we wrapped up that big case, the Alphabet City case. And then Danny got taken down, although I didn't have much paperwork to do on Danny at all. My, my, but at some point the chief, uh, it was a good guy, Chief Keating was his name, Keating. And he said, uh, Mike, I'd like you guys to see if you could get these guys in Coney Island. They were, uh, they basically 
sold crack and dope, heroin, but they would actually take over like a building, a project, where old people couldn't leave, couldn't go in. Like they would tell people, you can't come in this building today for until we're done selling. So like the old lady would have to wait outside until they sold out whatever dope they had on them. Same thing if you were coming out of the building, they wouldn't let you leave. Stay here until we finish. So they actually took over these buildings. And the chief worked in Coney Island when he was a captain. And when he'd drive to work, they would salute him or give him the middle finger or just be obnoxious to the chief. So he had it out for these guys. He hated them. So he tells me, uh, he gives me their names, and he, or one of their names. It was a, uh, it was a, f- a couple of brothers. He says, these guys, uh, see if you can work something on these guys for me. I said, no problem, chief. So <clears throat> what I did was I would wear like a tank top or T-shirt, uh, let them know I didn't have a gun on me, you know, or a badge. And I, I didn't even tell the DEA, which is what kind of got me on the outs later on. But And I'd go to Coney Island and hang out. Like, just use a pay phone, just drive around. I had a government car, undercover car. <clears throat> and I'd let them see me in the neighborhood. And I couldn't tell the DEA guys because they'd want to do surveillance on me. You know, they want to keep an eye on me. And it's bad enough that there's one Italian guy walking around in the neighborhood. Now there's going to be 10 cars full of white guys following me. Mm. It would have never worked. And why the DEA guys want to, why do they want to keep tabs on you? So I don't get killed. Uh, I see. You know, but you're taking more risk by not telling the DEA. Yeah, I'm taking more risk safety-wise, but getting a case going, I could would never been able to get a case going because hmm. they would have saw one guy in a car. Like, ah, don't don't fuck with him. He's, a, he's saying, a cop. Why, this guy shows up today, and these cars are here today, and driving around our neighborhood, it wouldn't have gone. Wow. So I used to go on my own, <clears throat> and uh, I eventually meet. Well, the main guy is I see him getting gas one day and I pull up in the gas station next to him. He had a nice, at the time, he had a a 190 Mercedes Benz. And I think I had a Firebird or Trans Am or something the government gave me. And I start talking to him about his car. And then we go our own separate ways. But I let him know me. Like, I let him, you know, see me, obviously. And then I I drive on Mermaid Avenue, which is a busy avenue, <clears throat> and I meet a black girl. And I don't want to say flirtatious, but we were talking. And she's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm looking to score some weight. So what she does is she says, uh, oh, I know somebody that you're going to like. And she calls up an Italian guy that was in a car accident with a, with a General Motors. The General Motors truck hit him. Now he's paraplegic, or I don't know about paraplegic, but he couldn't. He could only use, I think, one arm. So he had a special Cadillac that they gave him. That was his settlement. Every year he'd get a brand new handicap assess car, accessible car. That was the settlement that this guy settled for. No cash. According to him, that, this was his settlement. Now, maybe he got cash and just didn't want to tell me, but that was the settlement. Crazy. <clears throat> Crazy. So this guy's a character, I can imagine. He, yeah. So she calls him, and he came from, like, a wise guy family. And she introduces us. And he asks me, I said, look, I'm trying to score dope, uh, you know, some weight, coke, crack, whatever. 
And he says, well, I know guys. He calls up the guy that I saw at the gas station. Now, he, the, the Cadillac guy was a junkie. And he had bought dope from them. So they knew him. And they uh, was under the assumption, I guess, that he was a half a wise guy, his family or whatever. So now when he vouches for me, to this guy, that Mike's all right, he's a good guy, he's, you know. So now I'm pretty much in, because he vouched for me. <clears throat> so one, the, the one day I was going to meet all the brothers and discuss a deal, we were at a diner in Coney Island, off of the, right off the highway, off Stillwell Avenue. And a guy from my neighborhood pulls up. Now this guy, <clears throat> he's half Italian, half Irish, and he was in the construction business, but a big shot. He drove a, uh, drove a Rolls Royce, and he was hooked up, major hooked up. Major hooked up with Sammy and some of the major guy, main guys. But Sammy? <clears throat> Sammy the Bull. Oh, really? Yeah. He pulls into the diner, and he, now this guy played football. He was two years, he was my sister's age. He played high school football, as did I, but he was a little, two years older than me. But he had been to my house a hundred times, swam in my swimming pool with me and my sister. He was a friend from my neighborhood, a little older than me, but my sister's friend. Uh, went to ele same elementary school as me. He knew I was a cop. I see him pull up in the Rolls Royce. I'm like, uh oh, I'm done. <clears throat> but he was so sharp that I've seen him since. He's in my book. And he even, the last time I saw him, one time I saw him, and he tells me, I hadn't seen him since the book came out. But the book came out, he read it, and he sees me and he says, page 58, right? Because that was the page I talk about this, uh, <laughs> that was the page I talk about the story or whatever page it was. Wow. He remembered the page. He comes out of the car, he sees me, and he hugs me. And he kisses me, like a Brooklyn kiss. And how are you? And he didn't, of course, he didn't say nothing about being a cop. But these other guys, the black guys from Coney Island, they see this. They say, holy shit, this guy. He's a, yeah, yeah, he's a real deal. He's the real deal. Look at this shape of this guy and look at him. He's, he's got to be the real deal. So that's how I got into that crew. Wow. And then I just bore right up the ladder. And I think we ended up taking 17, 17 um, people now. Wow. And so how long do you have to stay in a crew before you can actually execute a, uh, like an arrest? Just as much time as it takes to get as much evidence as you want. You know, we kept buying. I'd buy off of different people, which was good, and bought weight, and which was, you know, pretty cool. So it's just opening the net and letting more fish come in, you know. Oh, wow. And they were greedy. So I had money to spend. They'd call their friend, buy off of him. Okay, buy bought off of him. Oh, that's so, wild. Yeah. Did it ever get dangerous? <clears throat> yeah, it got dangerous a couple of times. Uh, that case got dangerous. One one time in particular got kind of hairy uh, because we were doing this, we were doing the case, and we had gone up up Washington, up Washington Heights or uptown Harlem to do a deal. They were introducing me to one of their connections. And DEA agent was... Parked off the set, but taking pictures. One of the guys driving, on, one of the bad guys driving onto the set saw the agent with the big long lens camera taking pictures. So he doesn't stop. He keeps going. He calls up my guy, who I'm staying with, and he tells him there's a, a fed, a, a presumably a fed, taking pictures of you guys. So my guy doesn't even say goodbye, basically. He just leaves 
I don't hear from him no more. Like, at the time, it was like, you know, I knew what was going on because he basically told me somebody's taking pictures, he gets in the car and he leaves. Doesn't return my calls, doesn't return my beeps. So it looks like the case might be having to get taken down. And then I call him or beep him and he answers and we're going to set up. He, he I guess maybe he, because he hadn't gotten arrested right away, he felt safe. But we had a meet, we were going to meet on Mermaid Avenue. And this is the first time I'm seeing him or any of the guys since that incident with the camera. So I'm meeting these bad guys. And one guy had already shot a cop, one of these uh, drug dealers. Mm. That's why. That's another reason the chief wanted me to go into them, because they had got away with it. They uh, shot a cop, and they didn't so get convicted. We're sending one of our guys in. The yeah. chief hates him for you know <coughs> his reasons, and then now the cop gets clipped. Yeah, it's like... the cop had gotten shot. And so when I... Anyway, I meet these guys. I don't know if they're setting me up, and they want to walk, walk away from where we were, and I have to go with them. And DEA can't go, the agents can't follow me. The cars are way off the set because now if they get seen, it's really bad. It's over. So they had to stay really far away. And they take me in this alley uh, off of Mermaid Avenue. They were doing construction and they take me in this alley. So now I'm completely out, completely out of sight from everybody. And I thought <clears throat> this was going to be either they were going to try to rip me off or finish me right there or... Whatever. What are you feeling as you walk down there? Apprehensive. I was very apprehensive because I didn't want. I didn't know what to. I didn't know if I should just say fuck it. I'm not going down with you. I'm not going there with you guys. But then it kind of shows like, well, what are you scared? Of? I was never scared before. Why are you scared now? So it was. You know, I didn't know how to play it. You know, um, but I went with them and they just wanted to get off the set and get away from anybody watching. It turned out that they weren't. They didn't do anything to me. Let's just say that. Whew. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a pretty scary thing, walking yeah. into a dark alley after they see the DEA guy. Yeah. Now, what happens after these guys get busted? Like, do they know that it's you? Yeah. You let them know it's me. And that I'm a cop. What is a that? Civilian. What does that day look like? You know, it depends on the people. Like, some of them, you grow, not too many here, but you kind of feel a little bad sometimes because you grow a little bit of a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. But I always keep in the back of my head, these guys are selling drugs, man. They're killing kids. They're screwing up families. Mm -hmm. But I have to, they, we walked them by. Like I hung out, I hang out with my shield on in soft clothes. And they walk right by me so they know I'm a cop. And they, you know, not a civilian. Like after they're arrested. Yeah. So when they're getting taken out from the cop car into the station house, I made sh we made sure they walked by me. Or into the DA office, make sure they walked by me. And do they look at you? Yeah. And what does their face look like? Shock, pretty much. Yeah. Wow. And what is your face? <laughs> I don't even know if I'm looking at them, to be honest. It's, you know. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a tricky thing because, like, I don't want to betray anyone's trust, personally. But at the same time, these are bad guys yeah. doing bad things. So exactly. it's like, that's the game. You know what I mean? And they they know what the game is. They're getting paid a lot of money to take on a lot of risk. Right. So it's like it's not like this is you know they don't know what's going on. Yeah, I mean it comes down to greed. That you know, they're greedy. They want to make money. They don't care who they hurt. When you were undercover, who were some of the people you became friends with? Some of the criminals you actually began to like. Uh, there was a couple of guys from Brooklyn Red Hook projects that I, I became friendly with. 
But again, I know what you know. I know what it's all about. I know who they are. You know, they're my friend because I'm spending money. You know. Do you ever hang out? Like, like, would you guys like go get food? Like, would you guys like yeah. talk about your girlfriends yeah. or life yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Were those conversations enjoyable? Like, was it fun no, to hang because, out with any of them? You know, like one of those guys, I was, we were driving to Manhattan once, and uh, we were actually doing a deal. He was actually a Spanish guy. He had actually, he was a bad guy. He was a shooter. He had, had a bunch of, sh you know, shooting victims. <clears throat> and we're driving and we're talking, and I'm driving quick because there's a DEA agent following us, you know. I know he's following us. I got a couple of cars following us. But he's an old timer and he hasn't been on the street in many years. And he's got a car that looks like a cop car. It doesn't, it's not a un, really an unmarked car. It's, a, it's not a police car, but it looks like a detective car, mm -hmm. you know, like a Crown Victoria at the time, Crown Vic, right? And he's literally on my tail. Literally, I don't even mean a car between us. I mean literally on my tail. So you got to say something. So... I'm hoping that they don't see. Well, it's this guy and a, and a guy sitting behind me who's also a really bad dude. And you're driving. And I'm driving. And that guy said, "Bro, this fucking guy's been on us since Brooklyn." And you got. And he it. looks yeah. like a cop. He's an older guy with full-headed gray hair. So you got to agree. Like so you I'm like, yeah, maybe he's following you, but I, you know, I don't, this is the first time I'm seeing. And maybe he's following you guys from Brooklyn, and so you guys get in my car. So, I can't talk on a cell phone because you could hear. You know, they'll hear. Both conversations, obviously. Even if I tried to be covert, they would hear the other guy's voice. So I tell them my phone is dead. I got to use a payphone regarding something else. I get out. I use a payphone. I tell them, bro. I tell the agent. I call one of the agents up. The head guy. The head agent doing the surveillance. I said, you got to get so-and-so off my tail, man. He's literally right on my bumper. Okay, okay. We'll take care of it. I get in the car. Not even two minutes later, he's back. Literally on my tail. So now I say, I got to make moves. I got to get this guy off my... I got to shake my own DEA tail. <clears throat> so I just start driving really quick and like a bad guy trying to get away from a cop, right? Because if you act like, oh, no, he's not following us, then the guys are going to be like, what It's the obvious fuck? he's yeah, following yeah. me. With so, a cop car, no less. So now you got to start acting like a real criminal and be like... So I'm taking lights. I'm So the kid next to me says something to the effect that, man, you drive like you got an effing shield in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, man, you're just used to taking a subway. This is how guys drive when they're trying to get away from cops. Wow. And I get away. Uh, and then eventually they must have yelled at him, and I lost him. But I ended up losing half the surveillance. <sighs> but they picked me up again, and I think they must have told him to go home. Wow. I mean, that's sketchy. Yeah, it was bad. Okay, what about prostitution stings? Is that a thing that happens? <clears throat> like undercover cops try to like get like prostitutes? Yeah. I mean, I never dealt with that, but yeah, they do. Seems they like used a, to. That seems like a wild thing. Because you got to like basically like see a girl, try to f like pay her money. They come right over to you. And, but then like how do you prove that it's prostitution? Do you have to actually like do something with them? No, you just have to get the uh, the, the, mere, the mere offer. Oh, really? Of a, sec a sexual act. Yeah, and usually the cops or the car is recording. recording. Ah. But they're probably so covert, right? They'll be like, hey, the women? you, you want to you hang out? No, nah, they come right out. And they'll say, I'm a prostitute, it's this much money? They won't say I'm a prostitute, but they'll say, $50 for this, $50 for that. And that's enough? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's wild. Did you know of any cops that were on the force that got uh, injured or even killed doing undercover work? 
uh, a cop got killed doing undercover work in the projects where I worked in the Lower East Side. Oh, really? Yeah, I was in Brazil actually at the time. But you were in uh, Brazil? Yeah. Was this work related or is this? No, no, no. Oh, I was okay. through the training out there. Oh, sick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, But I was in Brazil, and when I came back at the airport, uh, I, I guess customs or whoever went through, started to go through my bag, you know, just like at a random check. And I just, not that it matter, but I told them, they're going to go through it anyway. I told them who I am. And, um, or maybe my badge might have set off the metal alarm or something. So I, and the guy asked me, where do you work? I said, Alphabet City, Louisa, usually. And he said, oh, a cop just got killed there this morning or last night or something. I'm like, holy mackerel. Uh, but it was, it was a DEA agent that got killed. Wow. Yeah. Do you know the details of what happened to him? I think it was, he was trying to buy it for some of the guys in Lower East Side that, that were involved with our case. And they found out he was a cop. Yeah. Fuck. I mean, it's so high stakes. Like, just one slip of one thing. I think goes they tried wrong. to rob him. Oh, really? I think they tried to stick him up. Yeah. That's a, if I'm not mistaken, I which think is they tried a, to stick which him is up. a part of it, right? Yeah, like, if sure. you're, like, you're an undercover cop, like, you're dead if they find out you're a cop, but you're also dead if they just decide they want to kill you. But I was doing a case on, pretty well-known guy from Brooklyn. Uh, he's uh, the guy that Jay-Z supposedly took his identity. Oh, I've, I've heard Calvin this. Calvin Klein Bacote is his name. Jay-Z had a mentor, basically, yeah. when Jay-Z was in the, the drug selling business. Yeah, and it was this guy, Calvin Klein. So like the other case, similar to the Coney Island case, there was a, several groups in Red Hook and other parts of Brooklyn that were shooting uh, shooting each other. Civilians were getting caught up. When um, I was able to infiltrate both both gangs, mm -hmm. both both sides. Or, uh, but one of the main main guys on one of the sides was this guy Calvin, Calvin Klein. And the, my first. So again, I was hanging out. I just went down to the projects in Red Hook and hung out with these guys. And eventually, they just started talking to me and liking me and so I bought off another guy but his main connection was this guy Calvin because this guy couldn't get me the way that I wanted but Calvin could Calvin was a big drug dealer in Brooklyn like well, they called him the Brooklyn Don and he was a big guy out there so my first buy from him I met him in the a pier in Canarsie which wasn't far from my house <clears throat> uh, and <clears throat> they, he pulls up with a uh, a Jeep. Uh, I don't remember what kind of Jeep, but a real hooked up, nice Jeep with black windows. And back then, a lot of people didn't have crossovers or Jeeps. Mostly it was cars, to be honest. But he had this Jeep, and the windows were really dark, black. And he tells me to get in his Jeep, and he had his brother, I think, was in the back seat behind him. And the brother, they were both, you know, they're bad guys, both of them. And, and Calvin had been had been involved with a lot of shootings. In fact, he did one with Jay-Z, supposedly, that he took the rap for in Virginia, out of state. I think Virginia or Maryland. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I get in the car, and I had ordered three ounces of, co of crack because they had that crack law back then. So for every, I want to say for every gram of crack, it equaled like 10 ounces of Coke. So the idea was to get crack because you get more time mm. by by selling crack or by buying crack, you get the perp gets more time, because crack was killing people and it was you know, people think it was a racist law, which I guess maybe it was, but the bottom line was, 
more people were dying from crack and it was ruining households. So anyway, the bottom line was I, I ordered three ounces of crack. Three ounces of crack was equal to like 20 kilos of cocaine. That's, powder, cocaine yeah. powder. That's pretty expensive probably. The crack? Yeah. Was it, it was it significantly cheaper? Yeah, it was cheap. Three ounces of crack was a couple of thousand, maybe, I don't remember, maybe six, eight thousand dollars. Okay. With one kilo of coke. Like fifteen, twenty? Yes, right. So three ounces, I'm locking you up for twenty kilos of coke. Wow. So so when I get in the first of all, I was a little hinked up because I didn't want to get in their car with the black windows. Because surveillance couldn't see what was going on in that car. I never dealt with them. These guys, I think we spoke on the phone. Maybe I met them, but I never did any deals with them. Anyway, I get in the car, and they give me a bag, black uh, paper bag, and he gives it to me. I start to get the money on. He says, aren't you going to try it? I said, what do you mean try it? So I open the bag. It's Coke. So I'm like, oh. well, when he gives me the bag, I'm like, yeah, I don't, I, don't sm I don't smoke Coke. I don't smoke crack. What are you talking about? Try it. And then I open the bag and it's cold. It's powder. It's not cooked up. So I said, I don't want this. I want the crack. I don't want powder. I could get powder from my own guys. So he said, why don't you cook it up? I'm like, if I knew how to cook it up the right way, I wouldn't need you. That's why I'm paying you for the cooked cocaine, right? So I give it back to him. I says, go home, cook it. Call me when you're ready, because this does me no good. And I give it back to him. Um, and then that's what they did. They actually did. They went home. They called me the next night or that night, and we did the actual transaction. But getting in the car and then getting in this little argument with them wasn't, you know, it was a little hairy. Yeah, it's wild. You got to be pretty confrontational. I feel like, right? Like you can't be, you can't, you can't let them think you're pussy, right? Like you gotta, yeah. you gotta kind of be like, yeah, what the fuck is this? And it's your money too. Like if I, if 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 this is a legit deal. Yeah, like you gotta really. Yeah, it's my money, man. What, what am I buying? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's... five thousand, six thousand ain't a fortune, but still, six thousand dollars. Are you a good actor? I mean, I, I, with them guys, I am. But then again, they got, they have a, you know, they greedy. Is there something that switches in your brain, like when you're in a high stakes situation, you're in the back of a car? This guy just gives you product that is not the thing that you asked for. And because it's such a high-stakes environment, you have so much adrenaline going. Do you just say, yo, I'm just going to snap into, like, a character right now? But you know what? I, I grew up with bad guys, to be honest. Like, I grew up in Brooklyn with tough guys. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, if this was in the back of the car with these guys or with my my knucklehead friends, you know, you just act the way you would normally act. Hmm. So it's not that not that distant. It's not that distant. I mean, I never did drugs or anything, uh, but, you know, you're not going to be made a jerk out of. Did you ever have to do uh, interrogations? Did I what? Do, like, interrogations, like, sit down with people in, like, an uh, interrogation yeah. room and have to, like, get into them? I'm so curious about that. I see a lot of uh, interrogation footage on YouTube. It's really popular now. Yeah. Like, they'll, you know, take these long five, six-hour, you know, interrogation videos, and then they'll sort of, like, speed them up and subtitle it and go through the specific parts that are interesting. How long were your interrogations typically, and how often were you doing them? I was a supervisor in the detective bureau. So most of the interrogations were done by the detectives. <clears throat> Although I've been involved with with a detective doing them. Uh, and then when I was in the DEA, when our interrogation would involve who their supplier was and trying to break them and 
We I had one. One was really funny. One of the ones from the Lower East Side. <clears throat> this guy, we had heard him on the phone. We had seen him do, you know, heavyweight transactions. But he also owned a livery company, uh, like a, like a black car livery company, like the nice cars that mm-hmm. they drive. And every once in a while, he would drive, even though he had all this money. And he owned, like I said, the cars. But every once in a while, he'd drive. On this particular day, it was the day we were locking them up, grabbing them. So we grabbed them all simultaneous, so they can't call each other and tell each other to run and all that stuff. So we grabbed them all. Anyway, <clears throat> so we knew this guy. Like I said, we had heard him on the phone. We had seen him. He's a regular guy, you know. When we pull him out of the car, um, he all of a sudden plays or acts like he's like he's mentally not there, like like he's having a seizure. He just stares into space, and we bring him into the, you know, into DA headquarters. We pro- he's not saying a word, and he's acting like a, he's not doing anything over- overtly other than just acting like he doesn't understand us. Like, like <clears throat> I'll never forget, he had on a, a suit because he was actually picking up a celebrity at the airport. I don't remember which one, but that's usually when he drove, when he was getting somebody cool, you know, so he could meet them. And he had a suit on, and he had his tie on, and um, it was summer, and he was across from me, and I'm talking to him, and he's, like I said, you would think he's not there mentally. And he frustrated me so much, I got up and I tightened his tie, <laughs> as tight as you could make it, and he turned purple, <clears throat> and he still didn't leave, get out of character. Like, he didn't say, stop, or I'm choking. He still stayed there. <clears throat> and then I obviously, I eventually let it open, and then we put him in the cell, and I grabbed one of the other guys that we locked up. Because some of these guys I had dealt with before. And I was like, this, I don't remember his name. I'm like, see, I know I've heard him on the phone. I'm like, is he mentally, what's the deal with him? Is he having a seizure? What's up with him? He said, no, he's acting. I'm like, acting? I was shocked. I'm like, that guy's acting like this this whole time? Like, <laughs> we got him in the room four hours. He said, yeah. He was a, that was a great actor. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. That's wild. What, are, wow. what ended up happening with him? He ended up breaking? No. He, uh, he ended up, cop, he ended up taking a, he never spoke to us, but he ended up taking a plea. He went to jail for a couple of years. Wow. Yeah. And what was the crime again that he did? I missed Sale. That. He was selling the heroin. He was a heroin oh, guy. Oh, got it. Okay, wow. Yeah. And he was using the delivery company as kind of like a cover yeah, type thing? Yeah, he had it, yeah. He, was for, he had it, like a taxing whatever, to hide wow. his money, and, and every once in a while he would actually drive the cars. Wow, that's yeah. wild. Yeah. So when you're interrogating someone, you're just about <clears> to sit down inside a room, and it's going to be you, another detective, and you've got to get information out of them. What is your strategy? What do you go in doing, and how do you guys kind of coordinate to get the information out of the criminal? You know, what? The, it really depends on each case, man. Like, it depends on who the guy is. <clears throat> like, Tiny, I may believe, like, screwing around with your kid isn't a big deal. Sometimes you have to come on forceful. Depends on what he, depends on what the crime is. Depends on who he is. Depends if you know each other, <clears throat> have a relationship. Mm-hmm. He might like to talk to women better than you. You know, maybe he's a ladies' man, so you let the female try to elicit the information. Mm. Depends. So you hear about this thing, obviously, all the time: good cop, bad cop. That whole thing is that legit? Yeah, that's, a real, that's a real thing. But I mean, I'll, I don't think it's it's not really. At least in my experience, it's not a, not a not really an acting thing. I mean, sometimes you might have a little more sympathy than I have towards this guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you'll say, you but you know, you give up. I go at him hard because I, I went at him 
you know, like a friend, or I try to have them confront. No good. Just go at them hard. Mm. <clears throat> then you come in, and you try to shake them up. You know. So sometimes it's just a tactic change. Yeah, or sometimes it's organic, like where you really I don't like this guy, and I'm threatening him. Whereas you think you, maybe you legitimately could help him out. Interesting. You know? I see all these videos where it's like, oh, now like the officer is gonna like lean in and like try to create like a rapport, right? Or like, uh, oh, he'll like lean back or like he'll mimic like body movements right. or things like that. Right. Is that something you guys are trained in when you're yeah. doing interrogations? Mm -hmm. Like, what would be like an obvious tip or like an obvious thing that you guys would do when you're interrogating someone? It, like, just a small little like trick, I guess, to try to create rapport. Yeah, well, sitting next to the guy or touching him. So you sit like side by side instead of across the table. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then like And then would... it depends on the chair Like a lot of times You want The bad guy's back In the corner And the door behind me So in other words You gotta get through me To go home mm. So kind of subconsciously It's like You are in the way Of me and the door Yeah Interesting Oh that's 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 very interesting And then as far as like Questioning Is there like Open questions Like how do you make sure You question someone In such a way to like I guess, trap them into a, a confession, so to speak. Like, if you know someone did something, you right? Know, it's really hard, because I've had cases, where I've, I had one particular case where this guy was, um, he was robbing this, this family. This guy was going fishing with his kid. And he was robbing the guy, and the guy had a heart attack and died. So that's a homicide. In the commission of a crime, the guy dies, that's a homicide. Wow. The guy that did it was doing the robbery. Um, I actually knew from from the avenue, from Avenue D, Low East Side, like when I was in plain clothes. I didn't know him well, but I used to see him every day with his wife. They'd go shopping. I literally see him almost every day, and I didn't know he was a criminal. To be honest, I knew ninety nine point nine percent of the guys. It wasn't surprising me that he was a criminal, but I never had dealings with him personally. Um, and like I said, I'd see him and his wife and the kid walk by me and we'd nod hello and goodbye. Anyway, at some point the detective realizes he's the criminal. He's the sub suspect. And we bring him in. And he swore up and down that he wasn't he didn't rob the guy and kill and kill the other guy. Because there was a one witness didn't die. There was uh, the family. And the, the the father died. I think the the friend or somebody else didn't die was was at the scene. And uh, this guy swore that he wasn't there. He didn't rob him. It wasn't him. He had nothing to do with it. And we had him for hours. And the detective was a great detective. A guy named Tommy uh, Bedell was a great detective. And he was interviewing him. for. And we couldn't get... He, Tommy couldn't break this guy. I knew him. I tried. I couldn't break him. Uh, we had the witness come and have him in a lineup say the same statement, whatever it was. Give me all your money to see if he could recognize the voice. Hmm. I don't remember if he did or didn't, but in any event, it wasn't enough to lock him up. And <clears throat> I was at the point where I, I don't think he did it. You know, I'm, I think he would have gave it up. You know, I, I kind of believe him at this point. It turns out, subsequently, months or years later, that he gets arrested or he confessed to it. He did confess to it. He did do it. He killed the guy. Wow. Yeah. And, and why, how did he confess? Why? Just... I, I don't remember. All I know is I, I later learned that he did do it. And I was like, man, that guy really had me fooled. Wow. He was able to dodge all the questions in the interrogation. He had the answers. He was, I didn't do it. I, you know. And like I said, I used to see him every day. It wouldn't have surprised me if he did it. 
those guys, I don't know what everybody's doing, you know, but like he wasn't like an outwardly guy that I knew as a robber who robbed people. Mm. So when he was swimming up and down, he didn't do it. Crying, the whole, I'm like, hey, maybe he didn't do it. Are you pretty good at telling if someone's lying to you? Pretty good. I mean, listen, everybody can get lied to. Yeah, of course. You know? but, but what would be a giveaway if someone was lying? <clears throat> I don't know. I just get a, I just can find, I, I get a feeling, I think, where I could kind of tell. And then if I question somebody, obviously it helps. I could figure it out. Mm. You know? Wow. The thing that I always see in the videos that always, it always seems very compelling in interrogations, you have two people that are arrested and you give them the prisoner's dilemma where you tell them like, hey, your buddy, he already told us everything. Have you ever had to do that? Yeah, you know what I did? One was a pretty, pretty cool one. <clears throat> there was a guy on the avenue. I don't remember what the crime was, but there was a guy on the avenue and he had this specific jacket that was an unusual jacket or coat. <clears throat> and um, him and another guy, I think it was, it was, I think it was a robbery. I'm almost sure it was a robbery. So we had the one guy in. We didn't have the guy with the jacket in. <clears throat> but there was another guy walking around the neighborhood that had the same jacket, and it was an unusual jacket or coat. So I called him in. I saw him, and I said, come to the station house. So he came to the station house, and I hung the jacket up. Now, I put him somewhere else, and I hung the jacket up where the guy we were going to interrogate would see it. And we marched him in, and he saw the jacket. And he walked right by the jacket. And they go, oh, shit, they got my they got I, my partner. I said, bro, I know what happened. I know everything that happened. If you don't give me the story, you're going to go away. I already have the story from somebody. And he thought for sure we locked his friend up, and his friend gave him up. And, of course, he didn't, but then he ended up giving it up. Wow. That's wild. That's very clever. Wow. I'll tell you, what, I'll tell you another one. It was really... It, it, it worked out... Well, we didn't get a confession, but I don't think the person actually did it. But we had to go to Pennsylvania. On a, it was a missing. It was a. It was a. It's a crazy story, man. This kid went missing. This teenager went missing. I think he was like nineteen. It was New Year's Eve, uh, and it, and it just so happened to be on the Lower East Side. It had nothing to do with when I was a cop down there because I'd already been transferred. But uh, this is when like Lower East Side was getting. Uh, gentrificated mm -hmm. and, and like some yuppies were moving in and stuff so it was off 7th street between C and I think it was 7th street C and D wasn't a bad block it never was the people on that block always took care of the buildings the houses it was, a, it was always a, a decent block um, anyway and, and maybe I forgot it may, may not be 7th street but in any event so these, this guy and his roommates go to this apartment uh, I think it's their apartment it's New Year's Eve. They're all high. On, they said they only smoke pot and, and did coke, but I don't know. Anyway, the one kid, uh, Vernon Jones was his name. His real name wasn't Vernon, but that's why everybody called him Vernon Jones. He, he started throwing up. So the other two, male and female, leave the apartment, go literally across the street, not even an avenue, a small street, to the bodega to get cleaning supplies. Mm -hmm. And they bought like paper towels and something else. Literally took three minutes, tops. Maybe, probably less. I had timed it. It's maybe less. When they come back, he's gone. Vernon Jones is gone, never ever seen again. It 
there was another person in the apartment, their friend. He had been passed out for a long time already. They wake him up. He don't know what happened to Vernon. These two people <clears throat> interrogated. Nobody knows what happened to Vernon Jones. It's, it's really a... One day, if you ever get a chance, there's so many... Look up how many male whites go missing New Year's Eve. A lot. In any event, and that's another thing with a cult. They, they say that's a big occult day. New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, and they look for male whites to do stuff with. That's what they say, and that's what I've learned working these some of these cases. But in any event, Vernon Jones disappears. So that happened, I think, in the... I'm trying to think, in the early 90s. I look back at the case only because I... I know what to do. I grab this case. I start going through it. Then when I saw it was a lower east side case, I you know I know people on the lower east side. I figured maybe I could get something going with this case. So I asked the people on the air, like the drug people and stuff, what they knew about it. Nobody knew anything. They knew about the case because the press was there for a long every day for a couple of weeks, and they had the dogs all the time. But none of the, my informants or anything. Nobody knew what happened to this guy. In any event, I wanted to interview the female and the male. The guy, the the male, was like a tennis pro teacher, you know, whatever they call him, tennis pro, teaching pro. And he had given statements. By the time I wanted to talk to him, which was years later, I, he lawyered up, mm. which that to, that didn't make him guilty. He just he's tired. Of, I mean, he's spoken plenty of times to the cops. Yeah, he wants to move on with his life. Mm -hmm. The female hadn't lawyered up, so we go up. I think she was in Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, what I did was <clears throat> I get pictures of the house, the apartment, the, the, the bodega, old cars, and I put them, I, access, I use a state trooper barracks. I put them on the wall. <clears throat> I get a, like I did with the other guy, I get a, a manila envelope and I put a yellow pages in it. And then I get a, a you, you, you know the tapes you, you, you used to watch? You used to put them in the machine and yeah, watch the tapes? Yeah, 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 VCR. VCR. I get yeah, a VCR yeah, tape. VHS, yeah. VHS, yeah. and I put on it the other kid's name that went to get the towel with her, and I put confession, and I put it where she could see it. So we have her in the room. She sees all the pictures of the old car, you know, the cars from that year and the bodega. She knows what she's there for. I mean, mm -hmm. she, you know. And... I had that with other tapes, but I made sure that that one was very noticeable. And she comes in, and she's sitting down, and we're talking to her, and she was cooperative. Because honestly, to this day, I don't think they had anything to do with it. Unless they had me fooled all. I, I honestly don't think they had anything to do with it. You know. And we're talking to her, and um, I leave the room, and uh, her eyes went, moved around, obviously, while we were gone. When I come back, she's crying hysterical. And what are you crying about? And she points at the tape and she says, how could he confess? What did he do? I, I didn't know anything. What, what did he do? But we may believe he did confess and we were hoping that she would. Fess up as well. Yeah. Oh, wow. But she didn't. Do you think based off her reaction, they had nothing to do with it? I don't think that was one of the things. But yeah, I don't think they had anything. To, I don't know. I don't think they had anything to do with it. They had no reason to kill this kid. Right. And even if they killed him, what were they doing? What were they going to do with him? Why, how did they make him disappear? Yeah. And he, some people think he walked into the East River, but it's a far walk from where that building was to the East River is a far walk. Because mm -hmm. number one, you have to walk through the projects. Then you have to 
cross over the bridge, and then you have to walk like along a, into the, let's say a beach into the water. It was a long walk. Why? Mm -hmm. No, he, there's no way he would have done that. He had just thrown up. He was half out of it. Hmm. So that's a real mystery. What I think happened was, I think while they went to the store, and it only takes like they said two or three minutes because I've timed it. I timed at the time many times. I think he stumbled out behind them, and I actually think somebody came and picked him up and put him in a van and, and kidnapped him and really? abducted him. And how old was the guy? He was in his like nineteen. And why would someone 20. abduct a nineteen? I think it's one of those things, man. Have you heard about? Have you heard about this place called Brooklyn Mirage? No. It's a music venue in in Brooklyn. It's like kind of in like Bushwick area, and uh, it's there have been. I don't know how recently. I mean, I don't know if there's any been anything more recently, but a couple months ago, there were like three or four like young men that just went missing, like kidnapped basically from that place, and some of them like they found their wallets later like in the river like there's just been like weird details i don't have all the facts right. personally but there's just been like weird things in the news where it's like this guy went to a party he went to like a rave right. and left at three in the morning got into a car that he thought was his uber and wow. then never no one ever saw him again unbelievable have you heard of stories like that yeah yeah so these abductions are happening to because as a man I'm, I'm never afraid of being abducted yeah, you know, what but, I mean, it's mostly my, you know, my yeah, wife, girls. I know they're like afraid of being abducted, but as men, I don't think it's something that we're as concerned about. But it still happens to men, huh? Well, yeah, I think it does. But but most of these guys, kids are vulnerable at the time. You know, they're not got their head on straight. Right, they're doing drugs, they're drinking, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. What's the case that you've heard of where you know an adult, you know, not a child, but a, a grown person was abducted or kidnapped? Well, it's this one, and it was another one that was a. Um, he was studying. He was at a, a Jesuit uh, school. Um, I can never think of his name either. It'll come to me. But he was uh, studying to be some kind of minister, and it was the same thing. New Year's Eve. It was a couple of years prior to this. He was walking down Houston Street. You familiar with Houston Street? Mm -hmm. He was walking down Houston Street. Um, well, actually, he was in a party off of Houston Street, and he was feeling warm, so he just went outside to take a walk. And he disappeared. Never seen again. And uh, Sam, Sam is his first name. It'll come to me. And so they don't know what happened to that guy. And he disappeared exactly very similar to Vernon Jones. But when we were doing this satanic case with Berkowitz and stuff, uh, there was a guy that was an artist that did time for a homicide it was a very well-known case out here. It was like an S&M case, but he actually killed the guy. And he was supposed to be involved with the satanic stuff. Anyway, he supposedly told somebody that him and his people took this kid. And he had hair from this kid. What? Yeah. He saved it. But he lawyered up. Uh, he, he's uh, Crespo, I think his name is. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, his name is Crespo. Wow. Yeah. Because if someone gets robbed, like, typically it's like, oh, yeah, someone came up, they took my stuff. If someone gets killed and robbed, it's like, oh, they shot him, his body was left there, and they took right. all his stuff. Well, why would you take a body? But to kidnap someone, no ransom, no. you dispose of their body. It's just a lot of work it's if you're just trying to rob someone. Right. So they must have an explicit interest in trying to actually kidnap them specifically. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an abduction.
yeah, those cases are so bizarre. Yeah. And and obviously sad, but it's just strange. Like, why would you want to abduct a grown man for no ransom? Like, what is the purpose of that? Just, I guess you're a serial killer. You're a, you're a psycho. Yeah, right. Wow. Mm-hmm. Did you deal with any other serial killers other than, you know, obviously like your connection to Berkowitz, but. No, Berkowitz and Rand. Yeah. Under Rand. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. The. Yeah, the abduction stuff is just strange. Yeah, scary. Is there any uh, cold cases or any files that you worked on that still keep you up at night? This case, I won't say I wouldn't say it keeps me up, but the Vernon Jones case was an interesting case that I would have liked to have seen something happen to. Yeah, you, you think we just about ran that. out. Of, I just ran out. You know, there was nobody to talk to. Just hit a dead end. It had been worked on a lot before I got to it, but uh, it just. You know, the kid don't just disappear into thin air. Mm-hmm. You know, any of any other cases like that? Anything else that comes to mind when you think of, uh, oh, like man, how did we not get this? Or I wish this one got got closed out because it's just so bizarre. No, I think no, I think that's it. Honestly, were there any cases that had particular like like quirkiness or strangeness to them? Like, obviously, the occult stuff, things like that. But were there ever any crimes you saw where it was just too bizarre, too strange to even fathom? Yeah. There was a case, I'll tell you, an interesting case. Um, at least I found it interesting. <clears throat> so me and my partner, like I said, we worked Lower East Side for a lot of years in plain clothes. We got to know everybody. Um, and everybody was, the dr- like, even the drug dealers, the heavy drug dealers would give us information. For a couple of reasons. Number one, they wanted to ingratiate themselves with us, so we would look the other way on some some of the dealings, and they want to take the uh, competition off the street. So, if a guy put a new brand of dope out, we knew that we knew whose dope it was as soon as they got on the street. That's how somebody would tell us. Did you see? Uh, uh, there was a guy Savage. He just got out of jail. He was jacked up, and he had just started a brand of dope. He named it President El Presidente. It wasn't even on the street like two, three days. And one of the, one, another drug dealer told us, that Savage got this drug called. When we saw him, we, we called him, hey, Mr. President. He couldn't believe it. He had just got the dope out, and we already knew it belonged to him. Wow. So he had to, like, change the name. But in any event, uh, me, so my point was everybody knew us, and we knew everybody. We were, me and my partner were working one night, and a girl comes up to us, and she wants to talk to us in private, in the building, like off to the side. So we meet her in the building, and she tells us that, I believe it was the fifth floor, but I, I have a pretty good memory for that kind of stuff. On the fifth floor, on her floor, her friend, um, they guys came in and basically confiscated the apartment. Her mother died, she needed money, and she let these people live with her. What they did was, they took over the apartment, according to her. She hadn't seen her friend for a long time. She ran into her at the throwing garbage down the incinerator. And she said she looked really bad. And the bottom line was, I don't remember. If she told us or we later find out, but that the, they, they turned her girlfriend into a drug addict. They, they started putting dope in her food, and then they started injecting her. They made her a drug addict. So... She tells she tells us that they're actually dealing out of that apartment. These guys are dealing heroin out of that apartment, which we would have heard, but we didn't hear about it at the time. Nobody told us about it. I mean, it was a lot of spots, but usually not out of an apartment. Usually on the street or 
different areas. So we went and we asked a couple of people on the avenue, Avenue D, and they said, yeah, somebody just opened up on in the fifth floor in that building. We don't know who they are. Um, so me and my partner go, and, and we go up there, not with the intent purpose of the drug dealing. We were looking to take care of it. Take care of the girl, basically. So we grab a junkie off the street and we bring him up to the, because they weren't going to open the door for us. <clears throat> we grab a junkie off the street. We say, go up, go up and make believe you want to buy from here. As soon as they open the door, just take off. So that's what he does. The junkie opens the door. They look through the people. They recognize a drug addict. They open the door. We run it. Me and my partner bust in. So the guy that answered, he was a big, muscular, straight out of jail, jailhouse rock, jailhouse muscles and that kind of crap. <clears throat> and we see the girl. It's just like on TV. There's one mattress. There's a hanging uh, light bulb. Places are... It's a disaster. No furniture. It's a, it's a disaster. And she's on the mattress, the girl. And so... We grab this guy. He gives us a hard time. Physically gives us a hard time. And we we have to we do what we have to do to lock him up, to cuff him, right? And then he tells, so not only that, he we get him to give us a written confession right there and then. Because she's pregnant. The girl's pregnant. So we grab him. We said, what, what's going on? She said, he me. And another guy. They, the other guy lives here. She said, you know who the other guy is. And I forgot what his name, but he, I think they he was a really ugly guy. And they used to call him something like Ugly Hank or Ugly something. And they, she said, you know who he is. You, you, you'll know, you know him. Anyway, make a long story short, she became a heroin addict. They, she tells us. They shot, she's got all track marks. She, they were living there for months. We, we, give, we take this guy into the station house. We give him to the detectives. And they're going to, like, enhance the case, work on the case. They remove her, and we're going to look for this other guy, the second piece, right? <clears throat> so we ask the guys on the avenue, the people we know, what's the deal with this ugly Hank guy? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, he might have been in that that building. That that might be. And everybody tells me the same thing. You know who he is, and I can't picture who this guy is for nothing. And they know that he, and I would tell the guys, I said, you know, the girl, uh, and they, I tell, I tell everybody, even guys on the avenue I don't like, drug dealers I hate, bad guys I don't like. We told them what what happened, and um, they they were angry also. And so now weeks go by, everybody knows we're looking for him. They tell us, oh, he's out of here. He went to Brooklyn. He went to Queens. He don't live here. No, he's not around anymore. So me and my bond weeks later. And, and like I said, every once in a while we'd still ask guys, have anybody seen him? No, nobody's seen him. I was, me and my partner are sitting in the car. Now we tell everybody when we get this guy, we're going to really make him regret <laughs> regret it. Now at this point, IAB is watching me and my partner because we worked like on the shadow of doing things 100% by the book. So we were always being watched by internal affairs, mm. which was fine. I, you know, We're in the car and we see... I see an ugly guy walking up to the car. I tell my partner, that's ugly Hank. It's got to be him. Because he was that ugly? That ugly. Ugly as hell. <laughs> and I see him walking walking to the car, and he sees me. He says, yo, you guys looking for me? So now across the street are all the bad guys. 
that we've told when we catch this guy. We're going to fuck him up. We're going to fuck him up. But I can't just get out of the car and fuck this guy up, right? You got internal affairs watching you I got also. internal affairs probably watching me and my partner. So what I tell him is, bro, you got three seconds to run. He said, no, I don't want I said, you got three seconds to run. So now what does he do? He turns and he runs. So now I have a, not only am I going to catch him away from the prying eyes of the internal affairs, I have a reason to grab him and rough him up. Because he ran, right? So we chase him, we chase him, and we finally catch him. And we took care of it. Wow. And then we locked him up, of course. And he got convicted? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, she, so, and then months later, she actually came to the station house, the girl. All cleaned up. I wasn't there. All cleaned up. Sober. Sober. She had the baby. She, they, the, the, the detective got her moved to a new apartment out of, I think, in Queens. Um, and she left me a note saying, you know, that thanking me. Wow. Which was really cool. That's, That's crazy. Really safe, you know. That guy was so ugly that you knew he was ugly. I Hank. knew it was the guy. The minute, because everybody said you know him. And the minute I saw him, I said, that's him. He's probably know. uglier after you got to him. <laughs> he was ugly, bro. That's <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. I really, yeah. And she was really great. That's one case I really feel, I mean, there were several, but that case, we, I really feel we saved that girl's life. You felt proud of that. You're yeah. like, yeah, this one, yeah, this was we, solid. Yeah, we took care of her. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What's the funniest case you ever dealt with? Was there everything that like you just look at it and you're like, this is hilarious. Like it's not that sad. Maybe it's a little sad, but it's just so funny. Yeah, we did a case. This is funny. We did a. I, I find it funny. So we um, we were in plain clothes doing drug 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 arrest, and, and this is my unit. I was in a unit called Operation Eight. It was four of us: me, and my partner, and two other really good cops, plain clothes cops, great cops. They taught me a lot. Tony Master Antonio, Jerry Staples, great guys. Frankie Diaz was there before us. Really, really good guys. Great detectives. And a guy named Pete McMahon. We learned a lot from these guys. Uh, anyway, it was that night. It was me, Jeff, Tony, and Jerry. And we're driving up in the avenue in a plain clothes car. But again, everybody knew us. We see a... Uh, every time we drive by, this guy would... Uh, it was a meter maid. Uh, traffic agent, they call him. But mm -hmm. a meter maid. Tall, 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 real tall, heavy, big guy. Every time he'd see us, he right away... He, Right in his book, like he's given a ticket. <laughs> so we knew he was up to no good, right? So we grabbed one of the drug dealers. We said, well, what's this guy doing? He said, he's looking to cop heroin. You know, he's looking to cop, but uh, nobody wants to serve him because they think he's an undercover cop. <laughs> I'm like, that's the best undercover uniform. <laughs> I said, do me a favor. Serve this guy his dope. Sell him whatever he wants. When he's dirty, take your hat off. So we, we leave. We come driving around. My dealer takes his hat off. We see the meter maid walking down Avenue D. That means, you know, he's scored his dope. So just as we're pulling up, he jumps on a city bus, walks on, city bus stops, he jumps on the bus. He goes right to the back. By the time we get on the bus, he's sitting in the back. And there were, you know, all the people on the bus. So he closes his, and like I said, he was a big dude. He closes his hands. And we are trying to pry his hands open. Open your hands, open your hands. You don't want to open. He opens his hands. No dope. Search his pocket. Nothing. We're like, I'm not. But then we look on the floor. It's right there. A couple of bags. Five, six bags. Okay, so we knew he was. We knew. And, and the guy gave us a signal that he was dirty. So we knew he had a cop. So 
we put him we put, we put him in a police car and we put on the radio central we have one meter maid under arrest for possession take him to the station house so by the time we get to the station house there must have been 20 cop cars everybody was had their horns was clapping <laughs> it was so funny <laughs> everybody was happy we locked up the meter maid <laughs> yeah, it was really funny when he get out of the car his hat fell off, and Tony says to him, hey, "You better be out of uniform. You know, put your hat on." <laughs> I mean, that's it was really fun. It's a tough look if you're buying drugs as a meter mid. You yeah. know what I mean? You know, it's I mean, do it off the job. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was. Don't yeah, don't tough. wear the uniform. No, it was getting bad. arrested in your uniform is pretty brutal. Yeah. Oh, that's especially wild. a meter mid. Nobody likes meter mids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Even cops are like, "Yeah, fuck this guy. Fuck this guy, man." That's wild. Yeah, that was funny. And last thing I want to know about: Can you talk to me about some of your uh, your mafia? Involvements, like I know, obviously your grandfather was kind of like a well-respected mafia associate. Yeah. But then, even growing up, you know, in like an Italian neighborhood, you kind of yeah, you knew some wise guys. Did while you were working, like in the forest, did you ever see any? Uh... I, I, you know what, I actually steered away from the Italians on the mob because I was when I was a cop because I was because Italians I, are annoying, right? Uh, yeah, and I run into them. <laughs> I don't want to see them at any yeah, weddings yeah, yeah. or anything. You yeah. know? Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I didn't want to deal with them to be honest, and I really had no reason. Like they didn't really. We didn't really cross paths, other mm -hmm. than the Italian guy with a car and Coney Allen. Mm -hmm. Other than him, I, and we didn't end up locking him up because he was a sickly guy. Um, I, yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn, Canarsie, which was had a lot of Italian mob guys. And my good, good friends, their father owned a bar that was Vic Amuso's real place. He owned it. Vic mm -hmm. was the head of the Lucchese family. Okay. Uh, and he, Vic grew up with my uncle, with my father. They all grew up in Canarsie, and they, you know, everybody knew each other. My father actually knew my friends' fathers. That's just the way the neighborhood was. It was a nice place to grow up. But one night we were, my friends and I, we were like 16, 17-year-old. We were hanging out, and we were in front of a pizzeria, and we were getting loud and obnoxious with each other. <clears throat> and the guy walks out, and he says, you guys got to move. Not, 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 he didn't ask us nicely, but... He don't have to ask us nicely. It's his restaurant, you know. He asks us to move and keep it down. And we're like, okay. You know, we were kids, you know. And, yeah, we'll move, you know. Came out again. I told you to move. We'll move when we're ready. That kind of, you know, that's the kind of answer we gave the guy, to be honest. And then at some point, me and one of my friends do leave. Not because of him, just because we were dumb for the night, you know. <laughs> These guys want to hang out. I was Definitely dumb. not that guy. Yeah, right. yeah, I was leaving. I'm just taking. Like you still got the chip on your shoulder into this day. You're like not because of him. That's schmuck. Yeah, he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I was man. ready to go. Seventeen years old, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but I was going. I was. I left. My friend stayed. Shortly after I left, he came out with a bat, baseball bat. He was a tough, you know, tough guy. He wasn't going to take shit from teenagers, and he, unfortunately, got the bat taken from him from my friends. I mean, like I said, we were seventeen year old. We were all. Played high school football. Everybody was pretty tough. They take the bat from him and they tune the old, they tune the guy up. He turns out to be a really well-known mafioso from Brook, from my neighborhood. That we'd all heard of him, but nobody had ever really seen him. His name was Bruno Facciola. His niece is was one of the mob wives. Her father was also a wise guy. Uh, I forgot her name, but in any event. Her father was a wise guy. This was the brother. He was the guy in Goodfellas that brought Joe Pesci to get killed. 
he he was the real guy that brought the Joe Pesci character to get clipped. This guy Bruno? Bruno. Right. Because the the reason why he was a Lucchese guy, his brother was a Gambino guy. They both wanted they were both in collusion to get rid of the Joe Pesci character. So they would ask the one brother, talk to your brother, set up. And that's how they and so he brought Pesci to, he brought Tommy D. Simone was the real guy's name. He brought Tommy to get clipped. And so now you and your boys just beat the shit out of him. Yeah, well, not well, me, thank God. My boys. Well, is this one of those things where you, that you, you say, oh, I wasn't at the, I left right before. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't there. Gotcha. That was, okay. I was really lucky that night. Yeah, actually. you were lucky. That's but very, what happened was one of, my, one of my friends gave everybody up. He didn't give me up because I actually wasn't there. So he would okay. if he would have said Mike was also hit, I would have been there. But he... And we don't know for a fact, but I, I know the guy. And he has since got arrested very recently, very recently, within the last four or five years, for moving a lot of coke, which I knew this guy my whole life. I haven't seen him in a lot of many years, but I never knew he even dealt coke, to wow. be honest. I was really surprised. I saw it in the paper. I was disappointed and surprised. But um, in any event, his father was a connected guy, too. So... In this mix was the two brothers whose father owned the bar that the head guys really owned. So they were connected. And this guy. But apparently his father must have told him, you better go and tell them who did it before they, the brothers do or, before, or maybe nobody does. But he'll find out. So he went and he gave up the two brothers and two of the other guys. So four of them. Five people were there. Me and my friend left. So five people were there. He gave everybody up. And, of course, Bruno got... Even though the two brothers were connected heavy because of their father, they owned the bar, the, the main guy went, everybody got retribution. One guy got a plane in his head. My other friend got shot in the legs with a sort-off shotgun. Supposedly, he says, the guy who I think informed, says that they blew his car up. But I, I don't. no one believes that happened, that his car got blown up. But um, wow. everybody got paid back. You were, one of my friends took off. He wasn't around for years. He just up and left for many years. That's wild. Your yeah. boys that you grew up with all beat the shit out of a mafia associate. That's crazy. No, mafia big shot. No, big shot. Yeah. And you're lucky that I you happen to leave. Me and my friend just Because if leave. you were there and your boys were all getting beat up, like, got, you, you have to get involved. Yeah, the two brothers, they were told they were going to go get this taken care of that they were going to like a sit down and they was all going to be whitewashed and taken care of and they got jumped on the way there wow <clears throat> oh so this is a serious issue yeah I mean they did a number on Bruno wow and he was like I say, he was a tough guy he's a well known guy years later he got he got killed and you ever heard of the mafia cops mm. alright so they were two cops that were dirty and they were doing giving the mob information they would get it from the com police computers they were really like two two of the most dirty cops NYPD ever had. So they were given information, and their information was that. And I went to the trial. I went to so one of the guy Vic, the head Lucchese guy, he was on trial. During a case, I was I was doing a separate federal drug case, and in between, like there's so much downtime, I'd go sitting in on his trial. And the day I was there, they were actually talking about this. So. The mafia cops gave the Lucchese boss information that somebody's a rat 
and they think it's Bruno. And the reason they thought it was Bruno was because the mafia cops had heard from one of the other cops, one of the other NYPD guys, not knowing he was talking to two bad, dirty cops, he said that um, Little Al, so Little Al's the guy I understand now. He's the witness. He's, the, he's testifying. He's cooperating. Mm-hmm. L- Little Al said that he had, they had told somebody that Little Al did this homicide. The only person that called Little Al Little Al was Bruno. So when the cops heard that Little Al, they told him, they said Little Al. He said, the only guy that calls me Little Al is Bruno. Bruno. That was enough to kill Bruno. They went and they killed him and they put a canary in his mouth and they put him in the trunk of a car and supposedly he was begging them on his knees. My daughter's getting married in a couple of weeks, please. They killed him. But it turns out, it's verified that it, wa- it wasn't him. He wasn't a rat. It was somebody else. But because the term Little Al was used, that was enough for them to uh, kill this poor guy. What? Well, poor guy. I mean, he was a criminal. He was. That was his life he chose. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. Isn't that crazy? And they put to make an example on him, they put a canary in his mouth and left him in the trunk of a car. Literally a canary. Yeah. Thinking he was a rat, but he wasn't. Wow. Tough, right? That is what I mean, that's a tough neighborhood to grow up in. That's a These tough are the life, kinds man. of guys you're you're growing up around. Yeah. And I think you had said that this is the kind of stuff that you saw growing up that kind of led you into cleaning up your act a little bit, not not yeah, being involved. I mean there was no there's no uh loyalty. Yeah. Look how fast my friends were giving up. I mean, I would have been giving up just as fast yeah you know and i mean they got bruno they got the they i mean i'm sure there's the list goes on of guys that get given up yeah and there's obviously a lot of talk about family and loyalty and not snitching and all this stuff and until a deal gets put on the table it's all greed and as a a quote from napoleon that i always love is uh, everyone's got a price i'm just surprised at how low most people's is wow it's true it's true right it is true man and nobody you know even nobody knows how they're going to, re- like, sometimes you hear people say, I would never rat, I'm not a rat, I would never rat. You don't know, man. When you're, fa- like, the case we did on the Low East Side with all them guys, the main guy was a Spanish guy. The number two guy was a uh, a black guy who had done a lot of time, was a tough guy, looked tough. The Spanish guy was very soft-spoken. They were like the top of the echelon of the 40 guys. Everybody thought, that the Spanish guy was gonna flip in a minute because he was soft-spoken and never did time. And everybody thought the black guy who had done time and looked like a hard rock and he cooperated. The Spanish guy who we had the mother on tape, the sister on tape, we were seizing his house, we were seizing the mother's house. We told him, we'll let your mother walk, we'll let your sister walk, we won't seize your house, we want you to flip. He stayed strong. Wow. The number two guy flipped in a second. You can never tell, man. That's wild. And once he flipped, the number two guy flipped, all the 40 people uh, cooperated. Wow. Yeah, except the main guy. He didn't. Uh, they either cooperated or they pled out, pled, you know, pled guilty. <sighs> That's so wild. Yeah, you can't tell, man. You think you know people and it's crazy. Until something comes across their table. Bro. Now, there's a, you had said before that there might have been a story or two that you had never really shared before that you might have thought of that you, you that, uh, well, that, I, the, the story I never shared before was actually that girl, the young girl that we saved her life. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. I never told him about that story. Wow. Okay. I appreciate yeah. you sharing that, man. That's, yeah, that's, no, all, that's, that's wild. Um, but dude, this has been so fun. I, I could listen to you tell stories 
probably for the rest of the night. No, we got to do this again. I really, really enjoyed it. You're a great storyteller. I, this is, I mean, my mind's blown. Um, and we can edit this part out if you want, but I think it'd be fun for like the intro, maybe even like in the episode. Do you have a gun on you right now? I do have a gun on me. Okay. So I'm going to not say anything wrong. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm glad I survived. I didn't say anything that would make you have to, you know. But pull it out? I mean, yeah, you never know. You never know. <laughs> oh, I don't pull it out. So we're good. Yeah. You know, you want me to tell you a story that I haven't told anybody that's kind of an interesting story? I would love that. Kind of, kind of a sad story too, actually. And it just goes to show the neighborhood that Alphabet City was. And and so me and my partner in uniform, this is when we were, both in plain clothes and uniform. We knew this kid. He was uh, mentally challenged, I guess you would say. And we'd see him all the time walking the streets. He was probably at the time in his late 20s or 30s with a mentality of a, of a young boy, five, six, seven-year-old kid. And he loved cops. And, and he knew us when we were in uniform, and then he knew us when we were in plain clothes. And we'd always talk. And my partner had a good heart. He was a tough guy and wild, but he had a good heart. And we'd call him over, and we'd let him play with the right police radio, and we'd ask, like, you'd ask Central for a time check. And she would that, that basically ask him, what time is it? So if you're doing a report, you want the exact time. So you'd say, Central, what's it? give me a time check. And she'd say, 15, 50 hours. Okay. So we'd let him say it. We'd say, we'd hold the key. We'd say, say, ask Central for a time check. And he'd, get, <laughs> and he'd talk kind of funny, right? And he'd say, time check, Central. And he would say it, you know, not so clear. And she'd say, what? Like, she'd ask him five times. And then she'd finally get it. And he'd say, okay, 15, 50 hours, unit. Okay. And he'd get a kick out of it. Oh, right? that's awesome. That she was answering him. Yeah. And then we let him hit the siren and all that shit. So oh, he probably loved that. He loved it. Right? He, you know, it's really sad because he's not, you know, he's a guy that want. He knew he wasn't like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So one day he comes to me and my partner. It was a spring day. He had a jacket on. And he says, I want to show you guys something. He opens his jacket, and he takes out an envelope with an inch full of money, maybe two inches. Like, what are you doing with that money? He says, my settlement just came in. What settlement? From when I was born. The doctor screwed me up. This is my, my mother got a big settlement today. Either she gave him some money to walk around with, or he took it out of the house. This is my settlement. You know, I don't, I don't remember his name. I don't even know if we only knew his nickname. But in any event, I'm like, you got to bring that home and don't show it to anybody. Okay, okay, I'm going to go home. As we're talking to him, we get a call on the radio, like a gun run, something heavy, either a robbery in progress, a shooting in progress, something heavy. We jump in a car, and, and he was literally 100 yards from his building. We jump in a car and we take off. We go to that job. All the cops are there. We handle whatever. It gets handled. <clears throat> Maybe 15 minutes later, another job comes over. Mail shot in the lobby of, I think it was 80 Baruch Place. 80 Baruch Place sounds familiar. We knew it. The minute we heard the address, we knew. Sure as hell, we get there. He's in his lobby. Of course, dead. Of course, with no money. Fuck. Crazy, right? Who would take this kid's money? And why'd you have to shoot him? Why do you have to shoot him? I mean, just... Why do you have to shoot this kid? His whole life, he suffered. He finally gets 
some money to make his life a little better. He was, according to him, the mother was going to move them out of the projects, <sighs> and they fucking and they kill him. I mean, brutal, crazy, crazy how, neighborhood. How do you like? I don't know how you cope with this. Like, do you think you get a little desensitized? Yeah, I think so. Like yeah. after a while, like yeah. you see this sweet kid, they, they, like and he that, dies. That, yeah, like, that was a horrible, horrible case. That's got to be one of the worst. One of like, the worst. For sure. There's no way that you And the can, minute it came on the radio... You just, you just we, feel we, it. We, you all, just, we know. Well, who else is going to be? Uh, terrible, right? Oh, that's awful. I mean, what? It's, it's. I mean, I'm very grateful that there's people like you and, you know, your, your co-workers and your partners that, you know, do their best to protect the neighborhoods. And, you know, obviously there's issues with police, and I'm sure you know better than anyone, there's corruption mm-hmm. and problems yeah. that happen, and, you know, th- there's uh, definitely no organization that's perfect, and there's a lot of bad cops, that's for sure, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm very grateful for the good ones that, you know, yeah. that try to, that, I don't know, to try to keep the community safe, so I yeah. appreciate everything you've done, man, this is, Thanks, man. This, this is wild, it's heavy shit, but also some, yeah. some good parts, too, of, yeah, man. Uh, you know, being a hero, saving some, saving some people's lives. Yeah, not a hero, but... Well, I'm more of a hero than me, okay? Yeah, well, of the people in this tent, you're probably the most heroic. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I really appreciate it, brother. Uh, Thank you so much man. for coming on, oh, man. You're welcome. We got to do this again soon. This Absolutely. would be this would be awesome. Cool, man. Thank you, bro. You're welcome, Mike Cadella.